a look at the early days of vintage on Magic Online, and our M15 review on episode 37 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 37 of So Many Insane Plays, our M15 review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. There are a lot of tournament announcements coming up in the Midwest and the West Coast and elsewhere. Team Sirius opens at Eternal Games in Warren, Michigan on July 26, at Comic Town in Columbus, Ohio on July 19, at Kid Force Collectibles in Berea, Ohio on August 9. So lots of TSOs coming up. Are you going to hit those up? I am going to be at, I expect to be at Eternal Games in Michigan on the 26th. Yes, there'll be a group of us from the Kalamazoo, Grand Rapids area heading over there for that one at least. Also on the West Coast, we've got Vintage at Eudaimonia in Berkeley on August 3rd. And We expect that to be a really good turnout. So folks who are on the West Coast, be sure to be at Eudaimonia on August 3rd for Vintage. So you're going to be at that one? For sure. Now, are you planning to go to this TMD Open also? Yeah, the Manadrain Open 16, which is a tremendous announcement. It's known as the Waterbury because it's traditionally held in Waterbury, Connecticut. has been really one of the largest marquee events of the year. And to have an NYSE Open, the Manadrain Open, and a Vintage Championship in the same year is something we've never had before. It's it's one of the uh, majors, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, longtime vintage players uh, will have fond memories of the Waterbury and, and Ray Robillard, who runs them. It's always a good time filled with more than just the vintage tournament, but also other festivities and games games and and good times yeah yeah i'm planning to go it should be fun i'm I'm a little um troubled by trying to figure out how to fly in because there are three airports but they're all about an hour away (laughs) so i'm gonna have to figure out some logistics but otherwise i'm looking forward to it i'm sure that several of the east coast regulars can give you some advice on the managing so steve you speaking of the east coast you just played in the nyic open and you did very well from what I hear, but you didn't win it. So what can you tell our audience about it? It was great fun. We had uh, about 92 players. And remember, the NYSE Open has a $100 entry fee. So it's, you know, um, people who come are serious about, about vintage. Um, or And the, prize, the prizes are very attractive, of course. There's Power 9 to the top 8, Sans Time Twister. And then, as folks will remember from our last show, um, Mishra's workshop given to 12, to 9th through 12th, and a bizarre Baghdad given to 13th through 16th. Mm-hmm. Um, I went undefeated in the Swiss uh, and drew the last two rounds and ended up fourth in the Swiss for top eight. Interestingly enough, every single person in the top four of the top eight lost. So the uh, wait, you mean the the top four of the Swiss? The top four in the in the, in the Swiss standings. Every single person in the top four lost in the top eight in the first round of the top eight. Interesting. So so five through eight took it home, huh? Yeah, huh. I uh, I actually played U uh, R G Delver Pyromancer Delver with Gush. That was a really good metagame choice. Um, you can find my deck list. We'll, we'll create a link to it. The top eight deck list. You can find all 
92 deck list on eternalcentral.com. Um, thanks to uh, both Seth Levy and Nick Koth and Jason Jaco for typing up and posting all those lists. Um, but um, the top eight matches is actually really fascinating. Uh, I played Oath. The, game, the first game, I'll just briefly recap. I've written a tournament report for VintageMagic.com, who sponsored me. I was a player uh, representing them at the uh, tournament. Um, but uh, their website isn't up, so I don't know when or where my report will be posted. I did do four interviews that are really funny with uh, Patriano, Jimmy McCarthy, Anthony Michaels, a.k.a. Twan Ponertown, <laughs> and Brian Kelly that are all going to be posted on... Um, one of them has already been posted on Vintage Magic's Facebook website, webpage. So you can go... You you can go read those. But um, I played uh, Rob Edwards, who ended up getting second place in the first round of the top eight, the quarterfinal. He was playing Oath, and I'm playing Delver. And in the first game, I decided I'd play Delver, uh, play a Delver, and he played an early Oath um, because I didn't have anything to stop Oath. So I uh, I just decided to go for it. And he actually, well, my opening hand was Black Lotus, Mock Sapphire, Ancestral Recall. Um, I want to edit this. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what my opening hand was. Here it is. My opening hand was Black Lotus, Mock Sapphire, and Self to Recall, Preordained, Delver of Secrets, Young Pyromancer, and Kosh. Doesn't have a spell pierce, force of will, or even a Trigon Predator, so it has no way to stop Oath. Mm-hmm. But it's not a hand you can really mulligan back. <laughs> it has Ancestral. So I played Ancestral, I played Preordained, and I drew another Preordained and played that. I couldn't find a force or a spell pierce. I did find a land. <laughs> so I ultimately decided just to play Delver. And, and be, really, the only way you can answer an oath if he doesn't have an orchard is Time Lock and Trigon Predator, but at least in my main deck. Mm-hmm. But because I've used the Lotus, that's not li- a, a very likely plan. So I just decided to go for it and, and hopefully, you know, race or whatever. Didn't work. He played an oath and he, he triggered the oath and found Gristlebrand. But the problem was he found Gristlebrand six cards from the bottom of the library. Interesting. So yeah, so I have this. I have a blocker. So he, he six cards in the bottom. He draws. So he has uh, um, four cards left in his library. <laughs> and he needs he needs exactly three attacks um, to win the game because obviously he needs to do twenty one damage. Uh, at this point, by like turn two or three, whenever he triggered the oath, it might have been turn four. They triggered the oath. My hand was basically gush gush misdirection misdirection. <laughs> so. Uh, and he actually went to play Croson Reclamation, um, and I tried to misdirect it, but the judge ruled you can't. It's because it has multiple targets. It, it always has multiple targets because it targets a player, and and unless it just targets a player and you don't shuffle anything back, <laughs> you know, it will always have more than one target. Um, but basically, it was really fascinating because I was able to get two Delvers into play to block twice, but he was able to get two more cards into his library. And the critical play actually was so there's lots of things I could draw. I could draw uh, a fire, uh, rather a fire ice to tap his guy at least once. I could draw Trigon Predators to try and block, Delvers to block. I was able to use one gush. I found two lightning bolts. And at one point, I, I so his first swing I didn't block with Delver. So I'm just going to try and you know do some damage in the meantime. It's not like it made any difference. But what I didn't think about, he didn't have Orchard at first. And if I had blocked, well, he did have he did actually have Orchard, but he didn't use it at first. If I blocked his first attack with the Gristlebrand, and then when he tried to create a token, so I couldn't oath. If I would to if I would burn it with my bolt, I could potentially oath up either. A flyer like a Trigon Predator, or more importantly, I could oath up Snapcaster Mage, Kevin. Yeah. And if I if I oath up Snapcaster Mage, I can flash back my turn one ancestral to win the game. But that didn't actually happen. So I, I mean, 
long story short, I had a one turn window to burn his his spirit. To, if I block with his my my uh, his gristle band with my Delver and then burn his spirit, I can oath. And if I hit Snapcaster Mage, I win because I can ancestral recall him for the win. It didn't occur to me. By the time <laughs> it did occur to me, it was he actually had made a second spirit token for me. Uh, so he knew uh, that, that was a possibility. He was really smart. Um, but even then, I was I gushed and I drew another Delver. I played it, blocked. I was able to gush again. And if I found either a fire fire ice or a um, a Trigon Predator, I would have won the game. He ended. He won the game with zero cards in his library. Wow. So that was game one. Game two, I crushed him with double cage and Trigon Predator on turn one. <laughs> game three was the most interesting game. Good Lotus and, draws, huh? Yeah. <laughs> game three could have the uh, could have the uh, subtitle of Hillary Clinton's new book, Hard Choices. <laughs> my, my opening hand. And so let, let me just go through this very quickly with you, Kevin, and see how you would play this. So your opening hand is Mox Ruby Island Scalding Tyrant Pyroblast Flusterstorm Time Lock and Snapcaster Mage. Would you keep that hand on the draw against Oath? What was the counter magic again? Hand again is Mox Ruby Island. Scalding Tarn is the, is the mana. Counter magic is Pyroblast, Flusterstorm, Time Walk, and Snapcaster. You can keep that hand. Hmm. Boy, it's it's really tempting. The thing is, is that hand, you just can't do anything about a turn, well, one, of course, but even a turn two Oath, unless you get lucky. Right. So You could, you could, you could Time Walk, and you're going to see two you're cards. You're going to see two more cards, yeah. And you could potentially also, if you get another uh, a Mox or something, you could Snapcaster Time Walk. Yeah. More. But the any... And the average two cards out of the top of your deck do not answer both. Yeah, all you need is another land actually, because you go Mox land, time walk. Yeah, and you, you know, actually you need a Mox. You need a Mox. Yeah. But your point is is right. You you could see two to three more cards, but in your list, if I if I understand it correctly, the average two cards doesn't stop Oath. Well, I sideboarded in three Scalding Tarn, one Nature's Claim, and the two Pyroblasts. Not not so Scalding I could draw a not Scalding what? Tarn. Sorry, uh, Grafdigger's Cage. There you go. And Nature's three three Grafdigger's Cage and one Nature's Claim. So I have I could also draw a Cage if he has no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of draws. I mean, you could draw a preordained to find one of those things. Gosh, there, obviously. there are a lot of draws, but it's not 50% yeah. of your deck. It's less than yeah, half probably your deck. Not. I just, I was really close on this. I wasn't sure what to do. I decided to keep it. But you really, you're right. You want to, you want an opening hand that has like Spell Pierce, Change, Nature's Claim, or even a Trigon Predator. Certainly a fourth would do. And, and if he has a sort of draw that needs to find Oath or is banking on anything else like show and tell or Jace or anything else, then your counter package is great. Yeah. It's, it suddenly becomes right. amazing. Right. So, so I was, to me, it's still a 50, 50 choice. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know, it's one of the things you'd probably have to run like a hundred times and see, see how it plays out. Well, the statistics tell us that they're going to have oath in their opening hand uh, 40%. 40% of the time. So the odds are in your favor that they don't have oath immediately and you can fight them I, finding it pretty well. I decided to keep it. And then actually he opened with, he opened with Lotus. Land Jace. <laughs> Interesting. So um, you can't stop at the turn it comes down, but you have a really great answer. And he played. He had, uh, you know, obviously a couple options here, but he fate sealed me. Hmm. Interesting. It, it, I think of all the plays, Rob played very well, but I think I would have fate sealed myself if I was the oath player. Yeah. I didn't have. Um, I think it's a totally sensible play. I mean, I play with lightning bolts in my main deck, so I, I'm with you. And we've had this conversation on the show before. Fate seal is a perfectly acceptable play in that situation, especially against multiple bolt delver deck. But I would have fate sealed myself. Yeah. So he fate sealed me. I untapped. I played. Um, 
the mocks and land and I play time walk. You know, if he has force there, I'm probably blown out. <laughs> but so it's questionable as to whether I should play time walk or just the pyroblast, you know, the root mox land pyroblast with fluster storm protection. I decided to go the time walk route, which I'm not sure is right. Again, it, it, all these decisions are hard choices. I don't know whether my opening hand is right. I don't know what the right sequence is here, but I played time walk. Um, and, um, I played the second land and I played, um, pyroblast targeting the Jace and it, it just destroyed that. Mm -hmm. I actually had drawn gush for the turn too. So I, yeah, I played the scalding turn and I fetched out trop and then I played the Ruby and I pyroblasted the Jace and I passed the turn actually holding up. I had drawn gush and spell pierce. So I drew spell pierce on my draw step in my first turn. So I'm now I'm holding up pyroblast spell pierce and fluster storm but you use the pyroblast i'm sorry but i use the pyroblast that's right so you've got pierce fluster storm plus gush and snapcaster left right right so i'm totally protected from from oath um on his second turn he played a land and passed the turn on my second turn i drew delver my true second turn right (laughs) not my time turn. right i drew delver but i didn't have a third land so i couldn't play it because i need to hold up both spell pierce and fluster storm because i need the spell pierce to stop both i need the fluster storm to protect the spell pierce makes sense he drew a card but he did not get a third land so he only has two lands in play on turn three, I drew another fetch land, which I immediately played to find Volcanic Island. Now having three lands, I played uh, I played Delver, which resolved. On turn four, again, he drew and passed the turn. Wow. On turn four, I, I flipped Delver, and my confidence at this point is obviously growing. I can't play the Gush, though, because, again, I only have, I only have, uh, three, la- I have three lands in play. If I Gush... Well, I was debating whether to gush. My main concern with gushing here is actually that if I gush, I'm probably going to have to discard a bunch of cards. Because I can float two lands, I can play gush, I can replay a land, so I'll have two lands in play. I'll have the Spell Pierce, and I'll have the uh, and I'll have the um, Fluster Storm. I may have actually drawn a Pyroblast, the second Pyroblast at this point, I don't recall. But I decided not to play the gush because I didn't want to be discarding yet, and i just hold it. I just decided to hold it. And, and this is what happened. On turn five, Rob finally decided to play something. He goes Mox Orchard and casts Oath of Druid uh, without tapping this, the Orchard. Hmm. Uh, by the way, I, yeah, I, I attacked with the Delver the previous turn, so I attacked the Druid. Right. So now he has... He, this. The problem is with this play is, of course, that he now is able to evade my Spell Pierce. So the question is, what do you do? I didn't mention this fact, but I also have a Brainstorm in my hand. <laughs> so I've got Flusterstorm, Spell Pierce, Gush, and Brainstorm, but I don't have Force, Nature's Claim, or Arcade. So I can gush, again, I have three lands, I can gush in response and brainstorm looking for force, or I can just let his oath resolve, untap, and and then I have a plethora of options, right? I can untap, attack him for three, I can gush, snapcaster mage, time walk, and then brainstorm the next turn to try and find a cage or a nature's claim, right? So what what would you do? Would you gush in response to the oath, or would you do the other play of sort of untapping and doing all that other stuff? Because if you gush in response, you're not going to have the man to snapcaster time walk hmm. again just to just to frame it a little more clearly the first plan is you're going to float two mana and try and find a force or a second spell pierce would work um uh you, you also have a chance of obviously finding claim or cage but the other plan is let the old resolve you untap you, you draw a card so you see another card yep. then you gush and then you have the option lots of options yeah snapcast time walk and then untap draw another card and brainstorm and see like you know so you see like potentially two more two cards deeper at a minimum that's not counting cards like preordain or ponder which are sources do you have a fetch again, land but, but there's but there's a narrower set of cards 
hard to, to, to answer it, right? So yeah. if you take the latter route, you have to find the one nature's claim, the mystical tutor, or the, one of the three cages. Mm-hmm. Do you have a fetch land at this point? No, no, I still have just three lands and that's it. No fetch. Three lands and a mox, right? And a ruby? Or was that the other game? Uh-huh. No, no, that's that was this, this game. game. You're right. Yeah, I, you have a mox, yeah. So, yeah, I have a mox. Um, and he tapped non-orchard land and a mox so he probably tapped a, a trop and a mox to play oats so he's got orchard and one other land up is that right that, yeah, that's how he's that's how he's avoiding yeah. your spell pierce exactly um, yep. so and can you recall what life he was at at this point 17 at the most probably uh, a little let's, less let's see i think he's actually at 17 no fetches no no force had happened and no fetch land no, he, he has a fetch land in, i think his other land's a fetch land okay so if he's at 17 I'm just I'm just thinking how much damage can you put through if you yeah, if you spell so pierce. So if I let oath resolve, I could I could untap. No, if you spell pierce, I'm saying, if you spell oh. pierce, he goes to 16 and gives you a spirit. You've got four power on the board and he's at 16. You attack him to 12. You snapcast time walk. You have six power on the board. Then you could attack him to six. So you you can't get him in a very low life total if you try to go aggro here. Just that way, right? Yeah, with just those cards. I mean, of course, you could draw a lightning bolt. Obviously, you've seen a ton of cards, and if you see a cage, you're you're fine. Yeah. I I sometimes believe that spell-piercing someone just to tap them out is the right thing to do. I totally agree. In this case, making him fetch and making him give you a spirit is a lot of upside. So, and with Brainstorm and Gush in your hand, and access to Snapcaster Mage... Yeah, I have Snapcaster Mage in hand. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's really attractive to me to spell pierce him, make him pay it, give you the spirit, put a lot of power on the board, and time walk. That's all just, you can just go beat down, and that's all assuming that you fail to find a good answer. You could untap right. and draw but, Trigon. But again, so so the answers, are, the, the subset of answers that I can find is, is half as large, right? Mm-hmm. If I So, I mean... If, if again, because I can find four forces and a spell pierce, our answers here. Yeah. The second spell pierce, but you know, mystical tutor, mystical tutor ultimately ends up being answered, but I won't be able to do that time walk. Right. So the list of cards you could gush into here is pretty short. It really is. Yeah, well, gush, gush, brainstorm. Yeah. I mean, I, I could get. Yeah. Gush, plus yeah, brainstorm. It's still get, pretty I short get, though. Yeah, it's ancestral recall, which is one more card. Um. I could gush into if I gushed into Mystical Tutor, that would also do it. Yeah. I could mystical. Tutor. Yep. Um. Certainly, the four forces, the other spell peers, Nature's Claim would be just fine. Yep. And and the three cages. But since you have just as so compared to that list, which is what about eight cards then plus or minus one. If we're not counting ancestral, yeah. Yeah. About, about the four force, the spell peers, Mystical Tutor, that's six. And then nature's claim. It, well, mystical tutor is fine either way. Yeah. Uh, nature's claim and cage. Yeah. It's, again, it's it's twice as large if you if you gush in in brainstorm now. Um. But what I'm saying though is that the cage doesn't stop oath from resolving. The cage is good either way. Right. Just right. just the cards that stop oath from resolving is about eight. If you let oath resolve. What are the eight? The eight. There's only five. The force. Well, the the four the four forces. How many more yep. spell pierces do you have? One. 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 And mystical. So it's only six. I count six yep. cards that would le- legitimately stop Oath from resolving. And it could find a force. Yeah. yeah. Counter. So then how many cards can answer it once it lands? Cages, Nature's oh. Claim. Yeah. One Nature's Claim and three Cage. And Trigon. And mystical. Uh, Trigon will not answer it because I need the time walk. Oh, uh, you don't have enough mana to. That's that's a that's a seven mana play. Yeah. And you can only make five, five mana next. next turn unless you drew Lotus. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so Trigon's not it. So there's four claims. I'm um, four, four, three cage and a claim plus um mystical. So it's actually one fewer that if you let it resolve, but you can see more cards next turn. 
Yeah, I mean, you, and again, all the, sorcery, all the sorcery stuff comes into effect. Oh, also, there's one other thing. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to count up the damage is because um, if you can get him to six, double bolt also does the deal. I, I've sideboarded out the bolt. I only have his fire eyes. Oh, well, that changes that math a bit. <laughs> well, that's a tricky one. That seems pretty down the middle, in my opinion, as to what the top two to five cards of your deck are. Fire Ice is technically an answer if I get him to six because I can tap his tap his guy and then attack one more time. Uh, um, that's a fair point. So yeah, it's down the middle, and I, I I talk to all my teammates afterwards. Jimmy McCarthy is convinced that and Paul and Jimmy, Paul Mastriano and Jimmy, who are my teammates with this event. Um, oh, by the way, I should say this match is actually decides not only whether I advance to the top four, but also decides who wins the team prize. <laughs> oh, nice. Because Rob Edwards and his team are and I and us are he's like three points. Their team is three points behind us in the team race. I actually beat both of his teammates. <laughs> Um, so wh- whoever wins this will actually win. And uh, it contravenes one of my usage rules in my gush book, which is that with a very narrow subset of exceptions, you should always gush on your turn. Yeah. The most yeah. prominent exception being if you're being wastelanded. Um, the other being, you know, your opponent has a game win, literally game winning spell on the stack or a card that is virtually certain to win the game. In this case, I think that the right play is actually to wait. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of reasons for that, but ultimately I gushed and I I still had, you know, complete control. So here's what I did. I floated two lands, I gushed, I drew things that weren't really that important, but I brainstormed and I saw force of will. So at this point I have like all these cards in my hand. I think I have like eleven cards. Let's see, I have I have Flusterstorm, Spell Pierce. So okay, let me just be clear. I have land, land. So this after the brainstorm, I have three lands in my hand. A force. Cage, Gush, Trigon Predator, Flusterstorm, Spell Pierce, Snapcaster Mage, Snapcaster Mage, and a Pyroblast. Jeez. I have to put two cards back. I thought that was after the brainstorm. Yeah, that's what I was saying after the brainstorm. I was, no, that's after the brainstorm has res, has partially resolved. Oh, <laughs> your mid brainstorm. Okay. Yeah, mid brainstorm. Um, yeah, so it was. So I have to. Put, so I I put back Island and Snapcaster, holding Tropical Cage, Trigon Force, Preordained Flusterstorm, Spell Pierce, Snapcaster Mage, and Pyroblast in hand. And I pitched Preordain. I cast Force, pitching Preordain. He actually played Flusterstorm in onto my Force, huh. which is perfect because I can use the spell pierce on his oath now yeah so that's exactly what i did <laughs> but he didn't tap his uh he didn't tap his orchard and at this point you know I, it looks like i have pretty con- good control though right uh, it seems um, like it sure yeah so i untap there was some question as to what i should put back on top i wasn't sure what to put back on top um i untap and i draw the second snapcat caster and i play the tropical island and so you have land land mocks at that point land land mocks and I had one more land in my hand. I, I had to discard something, and I discarded a. You know, I no, I think it was a. Not 100 percent sure, but I think I. I think I discard. I remember discarding a land. Actually, it may have been the next turn. I'm not sure. It actually, may have been the next turn. I, I don't. I don't know. Anyway, I discarded a land at some point because I never got. I couldn't. I, I somehow bottlenecked myself because of the gush. Or too many cards. Yeah. So anyway, I. But here's the, here's the thing. So I'm holding Flusterstorm and Pyroblast, and I have the Mox Ruby, and I've got Tropical Island and Volcanic Island in play. And for whatever reason, and with just a pre-programmed decision, I tap the Mox Ruby and I cast Gravedigger's Cave, which normally is the right play, except the fact that I have two Snapcaster Mages in the hand. Yeah, so you really narrowed and, your options. 
and time walks, bell pierce, pyroblast, all that stuff in my graveyard. So I played, I tapped the mock, I played the cage, and then immediately when I did it, I knew it was a mistake, but it was a pre-programmed play. Um, and he actually drew and played an Oath of Druids, another. <laughs> and so now I'm at this other, I'm at this point, and for whatever reason, I think I, I think you know, I must have done, Kevin. I think what I must have done on on the turn, I I I uh, played the cage, and I think I played a fetch land, holding the tropical, and I discarded the tropical. I had played a fetch land, and I shuffled, so I wasn't I shuffled the other snapcaster and island away that I had brainstormed. I, I think I drew the snapcaster, but I shuffled away the island, so I I wasn't able to draw another land, and I discarded the tropical island. So I sort of bobblenecked myself. I shuffled away the land I put back. And I discarded a tropical island, so I only had two lands in the mox. And so the next, after he played the oath, I was very concerned because if he has an if he has an abrupt decay or he draws an abrupt decay, rather, I'm going to lose the game, mm-hmm. right? So I decided I can play. I should play the Trigon Predator, of course, knowing that if he has a show and tell, I also will lose the game. <laughs> so I had to choose between losing to uh, show and tell or abrupt decay. And since he was so close to death, I just decided I don't. I'm going to wager that he doesn't have show and tell. I'm just going to play this Trigon, completely tapping out, and hope and pray he doesn't have show and tell. I pass the turn, and again, this is with me holding in hand, Bluster Storm, <laughs> Pyroblast, uh, and uh, um, a Snapcaster made. Or, or two, maybe even two. Um, yeah, I think it was. I had two in hand, and so he uh, he oaths putting the tri- the gristle brand on top of his library, and he draws it, mm-hmm. and they play show and tell, and I just like my palm, you know, <laughs> my palm is on my head at this point, yeah, palm to head, and I um I put into play Snapcaster made. I'm still not dead. Um, because he's actually at eight life at this point, but by the, I'm able to attack. And by the time he oaths up Gristlebrand, he's at eight life. Um, and so he can't actually activate the, the Gristlebrand, um, because I could, you know, potentially just have a burn spell and kill him. Sure. Uh, so he oaths up Gristlebrand. I mean, he decides to oath up the Gristlebrand. He oaths up the Gristlebrand. He show and tells him to play. At this point, I have him play Trigon, Snapcaster Mage, and a uh, Flip Delver, which is, um, Seven damage. Yeah. So he attacks me with the gristle brand, going to fifteen. I attack him down to eight again. And that's a pretty risky attack again. on his part. What? That's a pretty risky attack on his part. <clears throat> if you had if you had a three two Delver and a Trigon able to block, even Fire Ice kills that gristle brand. Right. So but I don't have the fire ice yet. So I am like digging furiously for it. I like preordain, preordain, and I gush and I find fire ice. Yeah. And I'm trying, and I, well, the first, before that happens, though, he attacked me, and I, going to 15, I attack him back, he goes back to 8, mm-hmm. he attacks, um, I actually think I find, I think, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what happened, I, I know I got him to one life, oh yeah, so this is what happened, I got him to one life twice, <laughs> there's no way that you can try on Predator and attack and kill your your own cage, can you? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. I got him to one, I did find the fire ice, and I debated whether to fire, you, I, I couldn't decide, this is my fourth really hard decision, maybe fifth, whether to hold it and like try and hope that he draws to one life and then fire him <laughs> or ice the tr- the gristle brand and try and draw one more attacker because i can only bring him to one yeah with each attack but if i can get one more attacker on the board i can win so i i couldn't decide what to do ultimately i decided that i would you know because i the, the fire plan depends on him going to one right. which doesn't seem likely no it doesn't <laughs> again this none of this is a problem if if i'm smart enough not to play cage because i could just time off <laughs> um 
So, you know, I do ice the gristle brand, but I only can get him to one and I can't kill him. And and eventually I just start having to chump block and he and he's able to win. Didn't you have if you're chump blocking though with Trigon and Yeah, I have plenty of chump blockers. No, the point is you have five power of flyers plus fire ice in your hand. Right. Didn't you at some point consider killing Gristlebrand? Um actually I, I misspoke. What actually he did is he flusterstormed my fire eyes. And I was not able to fl- I was not able to flusterstorm protect that. Oh okay. That's all I remember why. Because the turn I did it I had to gush. And so all I ha- I used two preordains and gush to find the fire ice on the critical turn. And so okay. I either had to ice it with my mox and a ruby and that's it, with no protection, and try and go for that plan of just like, killing him. If it resolved, I think I yeah, if it resolved I may have been able to win. No, he still would have been at one. But the, the, the problem is that, um, um, yeah, so the problem is that in, I have the choice of either doing that play or I can block once and then with a, tr- let's say I could block with the Trigon, but I can't block. The problem is that he's, his thing flies and I could block with Trigon, but then I, then the fire wouldn't, but I need to block in order to not lose. Yeah. So I will never be able to do five damage to, to Gristlebrand and cast Fire Eyes because I found it at the very last possible moment. That sounds like an awesome match of vintage. <laughs> it really yes. does. In retrospect, I definitely was mistaken in, in in multiple respects. I think that the the opening hand is either way. I think that the decision when to gush is either way. I think that the clear mistake is playing the cage. That's a clear mistake. And then I compounded that mistake by playing Trigon Predator. I should. I think. I think that. I think that that's a less clear of a mistake, but it's still a mistake. I mean, it's less clear of a mistake because if he does have abrupt decay, I lose. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there's at least a rationale behind. It. But but given the situation, playing cage, the default play of playing cage when I have two snapcaster mages is wrong. I also made the mistake both in terms of what I put back with brainstorm and what I discarded with after that that discarding that land. You were right to be concerned about discarding cards. It turned out to be a major challenge. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. It's a big reason why, you, another reason why you should always, if possible, gush on your turn. Not just the mana advantage, but it creates all, it creates all bottlenecks both in terms of hand size and in terms of mana capacity. Sounds like a good advertisement for your gush book. <laughs> Speaking of, is our last announcement. I actually finished the gush book. All 12 chapters are in the can. It's in the hands of the editor right now. So if you want to see it, Pester J- Jason Jaco to, to work on it. It's almost 400 pages, so it's in his hands. And my um, my tournament report, like I mentioned for the NYSE, I've written it. It's almost finished. It's 98% finished, as you can probably tell from my recounting. <laughs> uh, but it uh, it's going to go somewhere on the Vintage Magic website. I'm not sure where Daniel Chang wants to post it, but maybe it'll be on Facebook, maybe not. But it, at some point, it will be up. We'll have links to as much as we can in our show notes. Steve, you want to talk about your recent experience with Vintage on Magic Online? Vintage on Magic Online is a, is a strange and beautiful animal. Um, <laughs> No, it's it's an inc- it's incredibly fun and addictive. It's different in subtle ways than than, than constructed magic and real magic. I think I, I have I'm totally mixed opinions on the on the clock. 
I've ma mastered the shortcuts, so I don't really have any time trouble. But I do feel as if it's a little bit like playing blitz chess. <laughs> if people know the experience, who are chess players know the experience between playing sort of regular chess and blitz chess, playing Magic Online is very much blitz. It's you have to make every decision very quickly. There's no sort of time for elaborate rumination. I think it should be obvious to our audience, but you're relatively new to playing Magic Online, also. So you're joining Magic Online. For the, right. for the purpose of joining Vintage. Right. And and one of the things I, I was trying to say is I, I have in the short time I play it sort of mastered the shortcut keys. So I, I you know, I'm no longer having time trouble. <laughs> which is good, which is key. Yeah. But it still is very much like the experience of playing Blitz, Blitz uh, Magic. And I, I think that something is lost when we play Magic that quickly. I think that some of the deeper lines of play, you know, are... And, and sort of the weighing and evaluation. I, I think that we train ourselves less effectively that way. So I, I don't, I, I think actually Vintage on Magic Online is a wonderful experience for in, playing competitive Vintage, but I don't think it's an ideal way to test, if that makes sense. Um, because I think you people need time to decompress and really consider their options and evaluate each option um, with, with really strong forward thinking. There are other subtleties. Like one of the things that's totally different from Magic Online versus, say, Apprentice or Magic Workstation is that the chat feature, sort of at least in the, the version that I'm using, is either hidden behind the platform or visible altogether. So you almost it's almost like you don't have to physically interact or inter, you know communicate with other people. Mm -hmm. It's almost like that, that interaction is taken out of it. And that's both a plus and a minus. <laughs> it's a plus because I, I actually enjoy it because you don't have it, the emotions are just sort of drained out of it there's no interaction human element um but you know there's something is definitely lost the psych some of the psychology etc cetera, etc cetera. and all the triggers are you know things like things that happen in real life people forgetting mana drain mana that just doesn't happen mm -hmm. or forgetting a, a a young pyromancer trigger because they all happen automatically thing you know no one forgets any of those um the um there are there are other strange elements to it i have found though that uh basically i've been trolling the two-man cues and i've played i don't know maybe 25 matches and i've lost three i think just so i've won a bunch of vintage masters packs i plowed those into tickets and bought a, a bunch more singles uh, i played in a uh, daily event it's extremely fun i had a, a snafu with the, i didn't expand the stack screen wide enough and i was trying to fluster storm two spells and the, the there's a red sort of border highlight that, that shows you when you're what you're targeting and it, it had my opponent's force highlighted in red but the cursor was over my misdirection so i clicked it and it ended up countering my own misdirection mm -hmm. even though the force was highlighted mm -hmm. so that was a little bug i think you have to sort of deal with that by expanding the stack zone on the screen but i think the bottom line is this the bottom line is that i get to play mag vintage with people all over the world now high quality caliber players like rich matuzio in canada uh, mark lenigra in germany you know on this platform and it's a really great experience i i there are things you know that I don't like about it. Like one thing I don't like is I don't need priority when I declare attackers. <laughs> Maybe you do in other formats, but I. I shouldn't have to click that. I wish there was a way I wouldn't have to you know, do that. Um, you know, maybe you have to play Berserk before you, before blockers are declared. Uh, you have to uh, do it in combat. It's only in combat. I yeah. don't recall what the latest. Yeah, so there's no card in Vintage that I would really ever need to play that I can imagine. I mean, maybe some weird exalted thing <laughs> that I would play after I declare attackers. Right. Before before blockers are declared. Yeah. 
Uh, um, yeah, Berserk is only before combat damage. Yeah, so it does really focus your attention on things that are often implicit or tacit in, in constructed magic, which I'd actually think is very nice. Mm. Um, but um, the, the interface is actually, the beta version, which I've been using, is actually much nicer. I do like I do like the screen. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful way to experience Vintage, and it's <laughs> frankly incredibly addictive because I get in those two-man queues, and it's... I. I could just play those things all night, Kevin. I could play, I could play them for days straight. I could just take vacation days and just nonstop play those things. Or, or just eight-man queues or daily events. They're very addictive and very fun. And I, I'm really excited to see LSV and others have been doing some streaming. And and we've got a bunch of results already. I put, We'll post a link to the Mandarin that has all the daily results. Um, we're going to have a, a premiere event this Sunday. No, no premiere event has yet filed, uh, fired. But there's a lot of interest, and hopefully we're going to schedule the first one this Sunday. It'll be uh, probably, uh, you know, by the time this this podcast goes live, it'll have already fired, and the results will be up. But um, I, I really encourage people who really enjoy vintage to to buy in. Uh, the prices for the vintage staples are, with the exception of you know the modern cards like the Fetchlands and things like that, and a few other key staples like Mox Opal, Hercules Recall, Crystal Brands, and Show and Tell are actually fairly inexpensive right now relative to where they were peak wide. Um, so I'm really enjoying the program much more than I thought I would to be to be candid. But there are things that that I are not possible. <laughs> well, it sounds like all of your criticisms are endemic to the Magic Online environment as a whole. And that all of the vintage specific experience you're having is great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but that's good. That's what I would have expected going into this thing is that this is only a good thing for vintage. Uh, the the one thing that we still, I think, have to be wary of is the card prices. Power is still pretty darn expensive relative to, say, the average Type 2 card. Yeah. But I mean, Black Lotus, it would peak, you know, a few weeks after the release of EMA, it was hovering around $250. Now it's like 170 that's still a lot are, from a yeah, in print all, card. Definitely, but the Moxen are all in like the 60s and 50s right now for the most part. So I mean, they're relatively inexpensive. Certainly, you know, not ideal pricing. I think the good news is though is that those prices are obviously you could just go buy those things and spend tickets and spend dollars on them. But in the Magic Online world, a lot of people can basically make money by doing well in tournaments. And so yeah. it's the sort of thing that a great many players who are already skilled at the game and skilled at Magic Online can just work toward over time without a lot of financial outlay. Right. Or another way of putting it, I think if you make the investment, you can recoup your investment, you know, in, in not over over a couple months. If you, you know, I mean, that's that's sort of the plan that I'm on. I mean, I sort of made an investment. I made an initial investment. I purchased some cards over the last couple of years and then I, you know, did the final investment as of late. And at this point, I'm just, you know, making a lot of tickets every day yeah. that I play. Now, it's my understanding, and, and help me out here, but it's my understanding that VMA is going, uh, or at least the, the limited tournaments for Vintage Masters are going offline pretty soon. That was announced today, and I'm not sure what the implications of that mean. I don't know whether that means that the two-man and eight-man vintage queues are going to disappear because the prizes for that are, are VMA packs or whether they'll have some other uh, packs. I, I think that is one criticism I have is that – so, for example, the premiere events, there's daily events, premiere events, and then there's these queues, which are not scheduled, but they're – 
two-man and eight-man queues. And they, they fill up constantly. Uh, but, but one problem is that the daily events are inconveniently timed for me. The <laughs> premiere events are inconveniently timed for me. The premiere events are only held at 5.30 Pacific, to- Pacific time on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. So there's no premiere events during the, the, week, uh, the, the uh, weekdays, with the exception of Friday. Um, and, you know, it's really hard for people who have, you know, a lot of obligations to sort of, you know, relationships or whatever to get uh, take off a Friday or a Saturday night. And Sunday night, which is best for me, is really bad for East Coast people. Mm-hmm. So it'd be really great if there was like a premiere event that fired at like, I don't know, maybe one Eastern or maybe, you know, noon Pacific or something like that on a Sunday or Saturday. Um, and then, um, but, but yeah, I'm not sure what the implications of, of, of taking down VMA drafts are, but I suspect it will impact, you know, the two, the two man and eight man queues and it won't certainly won't help the availability of vintage cards. So I think now is the time for people to buy in. It stands to reason that supply at least is at the highest relative to demand right, right now, isn't it? Right. And, and I mean, it's interesting. P- people are playing vintage basically 24 hours a day. I've noticed it last week, which was the, the fourth, I was up fairly late <laughs> the, the night of the third playing online. I was playing against all pe- kinds of people in Europe and, and all over the world. Um, and the, um, what I just wanted to say is that uh, the, the daily events are getting like 30, roughly 30 people, you know, regularly. So it's, um, it's, we should be able to fire premier, premier events. But the point is that I think enough people are invested right now where you have a critical mass of vintage players and high level competition. That's definitely worth it to get, to get invested now while the prices are, are probably near a low or nearing in terms of supply. And what is the necessary threshold to fire a premier event in terms of number of players? What, what are we missing? 33, 33 players. How is it that the dailies are firing at about that many, but the premieres well, won't? Well, so, so what happens is people get in the dailies, right? And you have the dailies, you know, but people like the... So let's say there's a daily at five at uh, six thirty. I'll enroll maybe around like six six fifteen. But you have like a surge of people at the last couple minutes. Mm-hmm. So you might get like twenty five at like six twenty eight, <laughs> and then you get like seven more people at the last two minutes. Um, yeah, I don't really have a clear explanation. But last su- I played in a daily on Sunday and I went three and one, and there were twenty seven people in my daily, and then the one three hours before there were thirty three. Hmm. So you know if we just gotten a couple more people, we could have done a premiere an hour before. So that's why I'm sort of announcing to everyone we're going to organize it. And I'm going to try and I think it would be a really great thing to have a regular basis is have a vintage premiere event fire everyone once in a while on a Sunday. So, you know, I'll I'll post announcements on the Mandarin where I, where I and my friends and our teammates will will participate in some of these premiere events. But um, Randy Bueller on Twitter today and Tom Martell both said that they were going to try and participate in the one that I'm recommending, which is this Sunday. So if we get to fire, it'll be the first premiere event, and someone will have bragging rights that they'll have won the first vintage-constructed premiere event on Magic Online. That sounds like fun. You're also promoting on Classic Quarter as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're a member of TMD or Classic Quarter or just Twitter, you have no excuse. Follow follow the right people, follow the right forums, and hopefully we can get some of these premiere events to fire. And if you're if you're interested, in, and if anyone's listening out there interested in buying it in, you know we had talked for months about how Forcible was super expensive. Well, it's not anymore. What is it at I mean, these days? Do you know? Uh, let me take a look. You haven't bought one lately, I assume, but uh... no. Force of Will is on VMA. It is t- about twenty four dollars. Wow, that's a serious drop. Yeah. The reprint really helped. <laughs> And I encourage people to go, people have talked about sort of uh, magic uh, traders. I really encourage people to look at the bots. And uh, the, the, the place that I bought the most recent 
cards is Supernova Bots, which has the lowest prices. Um, there's a price list. It's They're actually really good. I've also found if you want to sell VMA packs for tickets, Go- Goats Bots has the highest value. So they'll buy my VMA boosters for like 690X, you know, between 692 and 696. So you pretty much get dollar for dollar value out of the VMAs. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're having a good experience, and I hope that others who haven't quite taken the plunge yet are hearing this and are encouraged because this is only a good thing for the vintage community. I really look forward to meeting the first new player in a proxy tournament that says, hey, I've been, I've been playing this online. Me too. Kevin, Kevin, you should definitely take the plunge. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. I am encouraged to hear what you're saying, but uh, I'm, I'm still I'm still not sure if Magic Online is for me. I mean, you could always buy in and then sell out in a couple months for a profit, a hefty profit. <laughs> Maybe. That might be something that could be done right about now, yeah. Well, more to come on that. But I think we should get back to the main topic at hand, which yes. is our set review. Before we can talk M15, we must go through our journey into Nick's report card. As is the recent pattern with our report cards, we'll, we'll speed through these things. There's only a couple of noteworthy items, in my opinion. The first card, Aegis of the Gods. That's our hexproof uh, hate bear. Steve, you predicted six. I predicted two. The actual was three. So our assessment was, <laughs> was pretty darn accurate on Aegis of the Gods. It saw play in mostly uh, green or blue and white X aggro control decks. And the appearances are actually somewhat diverse. It was kind of interesting. But uh, so we were right in the middle there. That one goes down as a win for me, but only just. The next one, Mana Confluence. You predicted 18. I said 15. The actual was only 7. Uh, oh. Yeah, I know. So, but really, the issue is adoption and conversion from City of Brass. So as we discussed yeah. at length, I looked at the City of Brass results. And City of Brass put up 15 plus appearances in that same time frame. So if you add 15 and 7, you get about 20-ish, a little over 20. So our our appearances, we didn't we didn't calibrate properly for the conversion factor of vintage players not adopting this new card. Uh, but the, yeah. I think that'll improve over time. I think as more people get mana confluences, they become a little cheaper, and and as people just replace their color printouts of City of Brasses with <laughs> printouts of mana confluence, you'll see that number go up. But strictly speaking, that goes down as a miss for us. That is a definite disappointment. I think that's going to change, though. Yeah. I think it's just, like you said, just the difference isn't substantial enough for people to want to spend the whatever 30-some dollars it is to get them. Right. That, that, that will definitely change. It will, over time. And there may be there may be increasing reasons to play Mana Confluence over City of Brass. More land tapping effects or something might enter the format. We'll see. Several cards don't merit much discussion. Dakra Mystic, we both predicted zero and there were zero. The Prophetic Flame Speaker, Steve, you predicted two. I predicted zero. The actual was zero. I know that yeah. you were you were banking on someone being a little more experimental with this one, but it didn't happen in, in at least in the first three months of the set being out. So that that's actually I think a little disappointing. And there's one later on that goes down the other direction for me. So we both had our one that we'd hoped for. I think that didn't come to pass. I'll spin through Eidolon of Great Level, that Revel, sorry, that was zeros across the board. Same with Oppressive Rays and uh, Athreos, as well as Dictative Crew Fix, Spite of Mogus, zeros across the board for all of those. The other one that I was referring to was the Disciple of Deceit. You predicted none, I predicted two, and there were none, sadly. 
So we both had one poster child for innovation that didn't pan out. I do know that some people were working on Disciple of Deceit decks. I do know it, uh, but none of them made top eight. So mm. at least not at any events that show up on Morphling.d. Are we going to count uh, vintage uh, daily dailies in this? <laughs> for? Uh, you know, you bring up a really relevant point. I think we should consider Magic Online results as legitimate results. Uh, they might be fewer players in some cases, but uh, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? I think it's legit. I do too. Yeah, I, I just will have to scan through those. And, and there's no, you know, just on an individual day by day basis. They only publish one daily event re- result a day, so it shouldn't be that much work moving forward. Well, let me just speed through the last few. Eidolon of Rhetoric, yeah. as I said, zeros across the board. Same for King Makar and Pull from the Deep. So uh, we had a couple of minor misses on Flame Speaker and Disciple of Deceit. Those were mostly just hedges. And the Mana Confluence. Compared to City of Brass, uh, did show up in about the quantities we predicted, but people didn't convert over to Mana Confluence to the rate we expected them to. Right. And that's, so if, if you had aggregated you know, most of the City of Brasses and the actual Mana Confluences, you would have taken the all. Yeah, our numbers were right if you combined the two. So overall, pretty good. Our assessments were uh, pretty spot on. The one that we got closest on, Aegis of the Gods, was right in the, right between our two predictions. So that's pretty cool. And I think you make a very good point with the daily results. Unfortunately, my understanding of the situation, and I don't follow it closely, but my understanding is is that their Wizards is a little bit inconsistent in terms of the quantity and regularity of posting daily results. Is that fair to say? Well, not from what I've seen. There are three dailies that are scheduled per day for Vintage constructed, but they only post the results of one. And the pattern seems to be that they post the results of the daily that had the most number of players. So they're haphazard in the sense that they don't post the results from everyone, and they don't post they don't post uh, like it in top eight fashion because it's only four rounds. But they only post all the decks that were four zero or three. So I guess what I would recommend is let's do this. Let's incorporate all premier event results into our thing because that's that is at least you know six rounds of Swiss in a top eight. Let's let's do that. All right. So here to four, we're including Magic Online premier results, but. As you said earlier, not one of those has fired yet. Not yet, but I think that's good. I think I think this Sunday we're going to fire the first one. <laughs> well, I hope that this becomes a more regular contribution to our results, but we'll see. And with that, we move on to M15. As we've done with most recent sets, we put on a call on Twitter for your ideas and requests for cards that we should cover, and you did not disappoint. Our listening audience came up with several cards that they'd asked us to review, some of which we're going to speed through, I think, but uh, but there's definitely material to be covered here. This set has lots of interesting things to discuss. It might not have a lot of vintage playables, but a lot of at least vintage applicable concepts here. Let's do it. I'm excited. First up is one scuttling doom engine. M15 is not short on fun card titles. <laughs> this is six colorless mana artifact creature construct. Scuttling doom engine can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less. 
When Scuttling Doom Engine dies, it deals six damage to target opponent, and it is 6-6. So clearly, Steve, the six mana for a 6-6 is already played in Vintage in Worm Coil Engine. And this card, I think, thematically competes pretty well with Worm Coil Engine. I mean, it does some different things, but the whole large body combined with bad things happening when it dies i mean this is the precedent set for that to be relevant in vintage yeah. i think yeah i just think that this is inferior to worm coil engine worm coil engines uh you know has so many sort of value propositions built into it mm-hmm. card um, advantage. not just yeah card advantage permanent advantage you know uh not immunity but resistance to sort of spot removal ancient effect, grudge yeah ancient, ancient grudge trigon predator alike um yeah, I mean, I'm going to attack you with the Frygon Predator and just suck up the six damage of the base. For six mana, I think you want Steel Hawkite or Worm Coil Engine. I can't see, I can't imagine this scene play. I'm going to go zero. I think your assessment is right today, and I'm also going to go zero. I do want to toss out there, though, that we have seen in the past, well, we currently have a one hyper aggressive workshop based deck, but it's more focused on affinity and skull clamp and drawing cards. If your deck is more focused on damaging your opponent quickly, this card, I think, becomes a little better than Worm Coil at that point. Harder to block, and when they remove it, they're going to take six. So they, as soon as this card yeah. hits play, it's like it's going to hit them once. I've actually found also that the lifelink on... Does Worm Coil Engine itself have Death Touch or just lifelink? Worm Coil Engine has both halves of itself innately. has Death Touch yeah, and lifelink. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, for example, you, one thing... One tactic that I'll do against a worm coil engine is I'll I'll just generate young pyromancer tokens and and although I can have complete control it could be many turns before I win the game <laughs> because of the amount of life that they've given they've gained yeah uh, you know I, I you know this this is will actually get through young pyromancer token but I don't see that as an advantage okay that's fair uh, again I said I agree with you in today's assessment but there's a could be a future yeah. state where um, the relative unblockability and the almost guaranteed damage make gives this card the nod over worm coil it's even hard for me to imagine it then but, <laughs> but i'll take your word for it. <laughs> well we'll see also you can um you can kind of dome them with this if you have a sack outlet so if you've got uh, that's true. something to like sack a, right a away forge this, ma- forge master. yeah like a forge yeah. master this becomes kind of like a lava axe uh, so anyway <laughs> direct it, damage yeah yeah we'll, we'll touch on direct damage in workshops a little bit more again later so we'll zeros across the board for now that's a good point that's a good point but i, I don't think that's yeah compelling here uh this next one i think has some real potential we're talking in soul artifact for one blue enchantment aura enchant artifact enchanted artifact is a creature with base power and toughness five five in addition to its other types so this is Mox Island and Soul Artifact. Your Mox. Yep. It's functional. It's like a blue yeah, that's, that's, that's the play. Turn one five five for two mana. Yep. That sure puts uh, Juggernaut to shame. <laughs> and, um, now most of the aggro control decks in today's vintage environment don't play the full suite of Moxen. They're mostly only playing two to right. three on color Moxen. So right. your you are Delver or your Junk. Well, junk's a bad example, but your Bant aggro control lists can't just swap this in for Tarmogoy. If it takes a structural change in a deck. But something like maybe Blue Angels, for example, which is a little more focused on artifact mana, yeah. might might really want this creature. 
uh, sorry, this enchantment that makes a creature. Oh, you're right. You're right. <laughs> um, it is technically enchantment, but it's really a creature. Yeah, and it's it is obviously weak to a few things that are common in vintage, like nature's claim and trigon predator. So right. it's not a strict but it upgrade. Also has the, it also has the advantage though of being blue. Yep. A blue tarmogoyf. Yep. Um, being reliably the right size. Five five is what you want all your tarmogoyfs to be, but they frequently come down as two threes or three fours. Yeah, and if you can get play this on turn one, you only just need a, dis- a minimal disruptive pack like bluster storm spell pierce mental misstep all that junk mm-hmm. win the game I, I, i'm intrigued i think this could forge a different kind of say blue red aggro deck in vintage that uh, has more accelerants and a slightly different creature package wouldn't be quite so much like uh, blue red delver that you've been playing but would overlap a fair bit Plus, this plays quite nicely with Gush still. Yeah. Because once you've enchanted yeah, that artifact, of, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of things it plays nicely with. I mean, you could play like Thoughtcast, Seed of the Synod in this mm-hmm. to get more reliability. So, certainly is. So maybe the, the current uh, batch of affinity decks is more the, the place we should be looking at as the home for this. Maybe they add more blue. Yeah, it's it's um, difficult to say. It's important to note, too, that you don't have to upgrade just a Mox with this. You could upgrade your Memnite for example, which those decks are playing. Right. And it's it has effectively it has haste if you're not tapping the enchanted artifact to cast it, right? So if you go turn one, land Mox something, like Thorn of oh. Amethyst, for example. Oh. Then turn two, well, Thorn is a terrible example because I just made this cast more, but something like a turn one play, like a Revoker to slow them down. Then turn two, you play a second land, tap the two lands, animate your mocks. You're swinging for seven on turn two. That, that's a very good with point. With your mocks. Yeah. I mean, in other words, you could play like a mocks on turn one and then play this on turn two and attack. And it's like it had haste. Yeah. It makes you it more of a, your mox. like a three mana creature, but still, yeah. still three mana but, five five with haste is decent. I mean, you could, for example, just build like you are Delver with more mocks and, and replace Power Mancers with this and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. This card is quite good at getting one over on Jace, too. Because of that haste aspect, it, it fills the role that Slash Panther did recently. Wow. Such That's that, a really good point, Kevin. Such that your yeah. your opponent can't protect Jace from this. Within yeah. Wow. You might find me playing with this card. <laughs> now, on the flip side, though, it is terribly weak to Jace. Because if they play Jace after this in play and bounce that mox, this enchantment just falls off. So it turns Jace's boomerang or unsummon ability into straight-up removal on this card, which is unfortunate. It's interesting that Steel Sabotage can't counter this, although it can bounce it. Yeah. So... But it doesn't actually destroy the artifact. It just returns it to your hand so you can replay it. It just destroys the enchantment. Yep. And there's one other thing, you know... You've played a uh, fair bit of um, old school magic lately, and one of the features of that format is animating a time vault to make it a creature. Mm-hmm. What do you mm-hmm. think about the notion of insoling a time vault in modern vintage for the strict purpose of untapping a creature for infinite turns? Is there anything to that these days? <laughs> Voltaic Key the is old, so efficient at this action. The old and still energy combo. Yeah, I mean, I, and I don't. I'm asking you, you know, tongue in cheek a little bit here, but. Does it open up any Time Vault shenanigans to have your Time Vault be a creature in today's vintage? Unfortunately, I don't think so. Voltaic Key is just so much more efficient than Jandor Saddlebags. <laughs> Same with Tezzeret. Yeah. yeah. I'm with you. There is the off chance that a certain interaction could be introduced to a deck that's already playing all those cards. I mean, it's already playing Time Vault and this. Uh, honestly, yeah. I don't think this and Time Vault strategically overlap very much at all, but but who knows? We'll see. Wow, I'm really excited about this card. When I, when I first saw it, I was skeptical. Now I'm totally enthusiastic. This could be the linchpin in a in a new approach to vintage aggro control. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm thinking about this in, in Delver right now. Yeah, reasonable. Another thing about Insole Artifact is that it is counterable by Spell Pierce, which creatures are not. Um, although it, like creatures, are not counterable by flushers. But also, I think one thing you do have to be wary about is if you if you simply don't have an artifact in your opening hand, or if you have one artifact and you draw two of these. So it does, you know, sort of beg the question: Do you have to have a certain critical mass of artifacts? And what is that amount? You know, does that mean you play things like cages in the tempo deck or not? I think that's an open question with this card. Very good point. You'd have to be above the threshold, not just of, say, a full package of Moxin, but you'd have to be above that threshold as well. So yeah. you're, you're right. You can't just add Moxin to UR Delver and play this. I think you need to have a larger consideration. You need to, you might need to have Trinket Mage. You might need to have Seat of the Synod. You're right. There are definitely limitations on this card, yep. but it's very powerful. Um, can you metamorph this? You know the answer to that question. Enchanted artifact is a creature with base power and toughness five five, in addition to its other types. So you're you're asking if you can choose to copy the five five artifact creature with a Phyrexian metamorph. Yeah, I don't think you can. On the metadrain, they say the answer is in the layering. So first you start with the actual object. For a card, that means values of the characteristics printed on the card. In this case, we're talking about the artifact that has been animated. Then before applying any other layers, including type, changing, or power and toughness setting, copy effects are applied in layer 1. The upshot of this is that a copy is a copy of the original artifact without any other effects applied to it. That's nice. So it's, I think it's the same answer as if you copy a Mishra's factory that's animated into an assembly worker. If you metamorph a Mishra's Factory into a, uh, uh, I'm sorry, if you metamorph an animated Mishra's Factory, you get an unanimated Mishra's Factory. I believe if you metamorph an ensouled Moxin, you would get yep. just the Mox. It would not be a 5-5 creature. Oh, it's also worth noting that you can, someone pointed this out in the Mandarin, that you can um, play it in an Oath deck. Is another win condition. And you can cast it on your opponent's Moxon. That's true, the trigger oath. So if this so this plus oath and they having any kind of artifact is a replacement for Orchard. Not replacement, but a supplement to Orchard. Right. But it also is another win condition if you don't have oath. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, it's going to be very hard to predict appearances. Uh, I'm in the non-zero camp. Uh, I'll go with you. I'll go first this time. I'm going to say I'm going to say three. I'm really glad you went first. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I'm doing you a favor here. I'm going to go four. Okay, I think it's reasonable. I don't think this is a disciple of deceit type situation where it's going to take a a brewer to come up with something interesting. I think this is legit. Okay, next up, chief engineer. One oh boy. blue creature, Vidalkin Artificer. Artifact spells you cast have Convoke, and it is 1-3. So, and tell, remind our listeners what Convoke is. <laughs> the, the reminder text on Convoke has become quite funny, I think, in M15. Your creatures can help you cast those spells. <laughs> Each creature you tap while casting an artifact spell pays for one colorless or one mana of that creature's color. And that's important because if you tapped, say, a Deathrite Shaman, it could pay for the green mana in Birthing Pod, which is ironic. But, um, yeah, so... I mean, you, the point is that you could tap Spheres of Resistance and stuff like that, uh, Chalice Voids, to make your creatures... No, 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 it's the other way around. Sorry. You can tap Creatures to cast Spheres of Resistance. Right, right. So you can tap so your Mem Knights to cast Lodestone Golems. You can tap your... So there's, there's no value in, in that, though. That's the problem. I don't see this as a playable. 
in vintage, and we're going to touch on this again in a couple of minutes, in vintage, the threshold for accelerants and things that tap for mana is very high, thanks to the Moxon and Mishra's Workshop and a few other cards that are prominent. So the notion that you could play a two-mana creature that's 1-3, which otherwise would have no point in the format, just to make it easier to cast larger artifacts or more artifacts is is kind of, well, it just is antithetical to what you're already trying to do in the vintage format. If you've got a deck that's filled with artifacts that are difficult to cast, that deck already has Mishra's Workshop and possibly Metalworker in it, in addition to all the Moxen and lands that tap for two. So that's already been obviated. If you have a bunch of creatures that and you need to cast artifacts, well, why do you need to cast artifacts if you have a bunch of creatures already in vintage? Like you could try and cast, uh, I don't know, Worm Coil Engine in your Young Pyromancer deck if you felt like it, but that just sounds like a terrible deck to me. I really think that the notion of accelerants in Vintage mean that this kind of effect, and one that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, uh, really are way underpowered. As opposed to, say, in Soul Artifact, which we just reviewed, gets way better in Vintage for that same reason. In Soul Artifact is not overly powerful in other magical formats where you would have to play one and two casting cost artifact first just to ensoul them on subsequent yeah, turns. But I think that the critical point is that the more abundant resource is non-creatures. The creatures in the format are being tapped for a very important reason. I mean, you could you could generate tokens with Young Pyromancer and try and use that for this, but that that's not that's not going to be useful here. That's not like, no, that's not something we're going to be doing. That's absolutely um, true too. And and the only decks right now that play abundant creatures are as you said, tapping them for much more important things than casting artifacts. Your Deathrite yeah. Shamans, your your Trigon Predators, your Delver of Secrets, your even Memnites. Lodestone Golem. Your Lodestone Golem, yeah. Uh, tri- uh, uh, Goblin Welder and Trigon Predator and, and just everything. Forge Master, I mean, these creatures are in there for very powerful effects and it isn't just producing mana. And the very few creatures that do produce mana are either far more efficient than this, like Deathrite Shaman, far more flexible, like Deathrite Shaman, or far more powerful. A la, <laughs> like Deathrite Shaman. Well, I was going to say Metalworker. <laughs> Metalworker is far better at casting artifacts yeah. than Chief Engineer, plus a couple of creatures ever will be. Oh, yeah, this is not playable. Yeah. It's interesting. Okay, zeros across the board for Chief Engineer. Next up, Act on Impulse. Two, red, sorcery, exile the top three cards of your library. Until end of turn, you may play cards exiled this way. Where have we seen this card before? Well, it looks an awful lot like one prophetic flame speaker, which we recently reviewed, where you can exile the top card of your library and you can play it. I was going to say three wishes. Oh, three wishes, yeah. For For those old school players, three wishes is very similar to this as well. And three wishes which is a blue card, so it's already got an advantage over this, uh, has been around since, when was that, Visions? Exile the top three cards of your library face down. You may look at those cards for as long as they remain exiled. Until your next turn, you may play those cards. At the beginning of your next upkeep, put any of those cards you didn't play into your graveyard. And Three Wishes is an instant, too. So from a, <laughs> from a vintage standpoint... So wait a second, you're saying that in every respect, Three Wishes is better? <laughs> the only thing Three Wishes isn't quite as good at is the mana cost in the sense that it requires two blue. But in Vintage, yeah, two blue is actually easier to cast than one red. It also buries the cards. It doesn't exile them. Yeah, Exxon Impulse permanently exiles them. Three Wishes at least puts those you don't use into your discard pile. 
So yes, in file. in almost every vintage context, Three Wishes is already a better card that sees no play. Okay, so there's your answer on this guy. Now, the only thing I can think of, Steve, is what if one of our listeners is putting together that that aggressively card-advantageous, heavily red deck featuring Prophetic Flame Speaker, which no one has top-aided with. In that context, you would want, I think, Act on Impulse over Three Wishes. I'm not throwing good money after bad anymore. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, so I think you and I are in agreement. The card superior to this already exists since he's no play, so... We'll go with zeros across the board. If anyone wants to put together that active impu- act on impulse deck and make top eights with it, please do. Now, here's another card that doesn't yet have a superior uh, existing precedent. Ulcerate for black is an instant. Target creature gets minus three, minus three until end of turn, and you lose three life. So for one black mana, you get to kill all the dark confidants, goblin welders, lodestone golems, death rites, trigons, Snapcasters, Delvers, a significant portion of the vintage creature base. Pretty much hit almost every relevant creature that isn't just an enormous artifact. Yeah, that costs less than five mana, right? Only, only, um, aforementioned, yeah, Forgemaster and Wormcoil and Sundering Titan. Yeah, 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 and and Steel Hellkite, but otherwise it hits all of them. Yeah. You know, I I think the comparison is, so you could think of cards like, like, I don't know, Deathmark, but the main comparison that comes to my mind is both Snuff Out, and I think perhaps more importantly, dismember. Don't forget lightning bolt too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm talking about in black. Yeah, though. that's fair yeah. enough. It just people, a lot of people play dismember because it's only despite losing what is it? Well, before life. life. Yeah. Yeah, because it's one, it's one colorless mana. So um, let's compare directly to dismember to start with. For a colorless and four life, you get minus five, minus five. So you can kill aforementioned Forge Master. Yeah. Which is why a lot of people are playing Dismember, especially in workshop decks. Yeah. Uh, for a black mana and only two life, you get the same. Three life. Three uh, life. No, hold on. Wait. Oh, sorry. You're talking. If you cast. Oh, no. It's yeah, black one, one and, and two life. You can cast yeah. Dismember. So Dismember has more flexible casting options, which is quite That's nice. Right. That's right. It, the, the flexible, the scaling is quite nice. I also, I mean, I also think that those compete with Snuff Out. But with oh, yeah. Snuff Out, you have to have a swamp. Well, I mean, with ulcerate you have to have a swamp in most cases unless you luck into your jet no no death right shaman can cast this <laughs> yeah okay that's fair that's fair and that happens but the simple truth is is that snuff out becomes free in that for the cost of one more life but yeah. it can't hit dark confidant it's or and it's much more shaman. conditional it's much more conditional well yeah. much more conditional i think is a little bit it, you, you have to have a i think having the swamp or underground sea is fairly conditional much more conditional uh, I, I don't agree i mean in the sort of decks that are going to want ulcerate they're going to be fetching a swamp to cast it in the vast majority of cases, and there yeah, are I mean, you, you will cast it off of a death right occasionally. It would be bumped. I mean, but they're also be casting it off of Jet and Lotus. I'm yeah. not and I would say that those are probably in the ten to twenty percent of the time situations. Yep, yep, and that that makes a difference. It does. But on the flip side, Snuff Out can be cast for free, means yep. meaning it costs functionally one less mana against Lodestone, which makes all the difference sometimes. Yep. Also, you lose the ability to kill Bob and Deathrite Shaman which are basically the only black creatures that are seeing play, you gain the ability to kill Forge Master and any other larger workshop creature. Another point of comparison may be Dark Blast. Dark Blast can hit a Dark Confidant and is recursible, recursive, yeah. but but it cannot kill a Death Ride Shaman unless you have another draw trigger. Mm-hmm. So this 
you know, th this is an interesting, this actually is a really good example of what I was talking about in terms of building cards that are situationally better and situationally worse mm -hmm. than ex existing playables. Um, so, I mean, frankly, there. what are the situations in which this is better than Dismember? Well, this is better than Dismember when you have a Swamp and a Colorless and you need to destroy a Lodestone Golem or anything like that, but you don't want is dismember dismember is also an instant but you don't yeah. so you lose less life for the same casting cost basically um yeah this is better than dismember when you only have the one mana and life is really an issue because you can lose yeah. the three instead of the four it's worse in clearly in the sense that it requires a color of mana at all times so it's not playable in a workshop deck it also can't kill a kodeltha forge master um i a funny story in one of my interviews that you can read, you'll be able to read on the Vintage Magic Facebook webpage is that Jimmy McCarthy killed a uh, gristle brand by dismembering it. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> after walking with the Delver, so that's awesome yeah, there's that as well oh, that's a good point and also tarmogoyf too tarmogoyf is probably a biggie yeah um this member will be able to kill the uh, aeon whatever that thing is in soul artifact yeah <laughs> wow yeah if in soul artifact really takes off dismember goes up in value a lot as well so, relative to so this just, i mean i think dismember is generally much more useful but there are times where this is better than dismember mm-hmm and there are clearly times when it's better than snuff out. Obviously, the targeting requirements and the life and the swamp, as you mentioned, so we already yeah. elucidated those. They're probably, yeah, of the three, Dismember probably is the most useful. And then I would give snuff out the nod over this, but it's much yeah. closer. Yeah, I think that's right. And this is a, a close third. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess that brings us to appearances then. What do you think? Both Dismember and Snuff Out clearly see play. So do you think this will get the nod in some cases? Yeah. Could, let, can you see how many uh, decks... Uh, let's take a look at Snuff Out. Let's use that as a point of comparison. Okay. It looks like uh, year to date, we've got about 20 to 30 appearances of Snuff Out. I'm eyeballing here. There might be some in the same deck. Okay, we'll look at Dismember now, and let's see. Dismember has far more. I just did... It's in all those workshop decks. Yeah, I just yeah. did 40 results, and I got... The first page only goes back to... <laughs> hold on. The first page only goes back to April, so probably at least 80 appearances, I'm guessing, all right. year to date. I'm going to say... I'm going to say... Uh, I'm going to say two appearances. Okay. Well, I think that players will consider this. I really do think that they're going to opt for Dismember and or Snuff Out over this every time. I'm going to go with zero. Okay. It should definitely be considered, but we'll see. Okay. Generator Servant. One red creature elemental. Tap and sacrifice Generator Servant. Add two colorless to your mana pool. If that mana is spent on a creature spell, it gains haste until end of turn. Two, one. Wow. So we've... Where have we... Where have we seen creatures like this before? Are, are there there are other creatures that cost two the tap for two mana? Boy, I can't think of an example with that exact criteria. There was a like there's an there elemental curtain blocks that like tap for two, but you could only use it to play artifacts or something. Oh um, yes, that's true. There was a blue creature I can't remember the name of it right now uh, that did that. There's also one that was red that does it for elementals that this, makes mana you can only cast element elementals with. This card definitely seems like a constructed playable card though. Um, it's a good accelerant for, I would say, non-eternal formats. Yeah, yeah. In vintage... Standard, this is like a turn two Ernham Jin or something. <laughs> well, that's a pretty retro reference, but I get your point. Yeah. Okay. okay, turn two. Turn two. Uh, it's it's like, it reminds me of the Fires of Yamavaya deck, right? <laughs> You've got card, like turn two. If this you, card you know, had been printed 15 years ago, it'd be great. <laughs> yeah. 
And turn, I mean, turn two, play this in fires. Turn three, you have a shivan worm yeah. attacking for haste. Yeah, you're right about that. And he returns this to your hand, too, so. Well, no, you have What's to that? sacrifice this. Oh, this is a sacrifice? Yeah. Oh, forget about it. <laughs> it gives you the mana, and it gives said creature haste. Yeah. But no, that's, that's, what, that's the sacrifice. That's where the sacrifice comes in. Nope. And you don't have to cast creatures with it. It is legitimately just two mana. It's sure. just you get upside if you cast a creature with it. Nope, this isn't yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, there's no way that anyone's going to play this in Vintage. There's so many, as we said earlier, there's so many easier ways to get mana with Accelerants in Vintage that the little bit of upside you get from giving haste is far outweighed by how inefficient this is relative to everything else. Yep. Reclamation Sage. Two green creature elf shaman. When Reclamation Sage enters the battlefield, you may destroy target artifact or enchantment, and it's 2-1. I mean, there's a million white creatures that do this, right? Well, um, that's a good point. Short answer is yes. Long answer is I don't think there's one that does the disenchant both sides. So we got Utabi Orangutan that does artifacts. Yeah. Then there are those like white, the bunch of white creatures that destroy enchantments when they come into play at this casting cost. That's right. But there's nothing that does both, not one. Well, to your point, there's already a Leonin Relic Warder, which exiles it temporarily as long as it's in play. Uh, there's already Harmonic Sliver, which does see play occasionally in Vintage. It has, which is this, the green-white Sliver version of this effect. And at higher mana costs, there's there are other effects like Acidic Slime that don't really see play. So I guess this compares directly to Leon and Relic Warder and slightly less so to Harmonic Sliver. What are those creatures that I was talking about, the white ones, that remove enchantments when they come into play? There's some really old ones that do that. For just enchantments, there are several versions. There's the Monk Realist, which was the oldest, yeah. I think. Yeah. But then that was recreated as War Priest of Thune. Then there's the um, the one that Dredge plays, the the, the Evoke one, um, Wispmare. So there are plenty of just artifact yeah. and just enchantment versions that are more efficient than this. Okay. You're paying for the flexibility at three mana here. And as such, looking at Harmonic Sliver, for example, according to Morphic Doc D, it was back in 2013, the last time that saw any play. And this is legitimately more efficient than a Harmonic Sliver, both in mana cost and in power and toughness. Yeah, I, d I don't think this is playable, though. I think that, you know, you've got Kasali Primage, you've got Real New Relic Water. Mm -hmm. And there are enough cards that hit one side or the other. I mean, it's not entirely unplayable. It could be played in like a, you know, the one of in a survival deck, like Adrian Becker's survival deck. But I don't think this is going to see a lot of top eights. Relic Warder's only put up four top eights all year. Okay, what about Uktabi Orangutan? Check that, period. Probably zero. <laughs> Uktabi's yeah. probably zero. Let me see. Yeah, the last time Uktabi showed up in a vintage top eight was 2011. And for good reason. And Harmonic Sliver, yeah. So this effect is it's very fringe playable in Vintage. There's a chance, as you said, that one deck, possibly a survival-style deck, would want one of these somewhere in the 75, but that seems kind of slim to me. Yep. I'm going with zero. Me too. Now, this next one is a product of our call-out to Twitter, and I don't think this one is legit, but let's talk about Radiant Fountain. <laughs> when Radiant Fountain enters play... The battlefield, sorry, you gain two life. Tap to add one colorless mana to your mana pool. This is just a land that taps for colorless and gives you two life. Now, it comes in untapped, so it is more aggressively designed than any of the other former lands that give you life when they come in, because I think to a man, they all came in tapped. So we're talking about limited to very few decks. If you want to gain life, if maybe if you had some kind of trick where you're replaying it with Crucible, you could gain four or six life in a game. Yeah, this would be pretty awesome with Lich. Uh, that's 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you can get Lich in play and afford to have a land in your and afford to have a land drop that produces only colorless mana, you're gonna draw <laughs> yourself two cards right there. Yeah, I was being glib, but <laughs> I mean, sort of, to, to be to be more candid. It's difficult to imagine a deck that has has non-basic lands that generate colorless that would substitute them for this. So even in like a workshop deck where you would maybe have space for that sort of thing, you would just play things like Buried Ruin over this. Or even a Ghost Quarter or a Mistress Factory. Mistress Factory, yeah. Yeah, so the the opportunity cost of this is just far too enormous to even imagine. You know, even a Landstale deck is not going to play this. Yep. So. Yeah, you're right. You're, the two life you're talking about here is competing directly with the creature of a workshop or the getting artifacts back of Buried Ruin or the extra wasteland effects of a, some aggro decks yeah. do play Ghost Quarter these days. Those effects are all far more valuable in vintage than the life gain. I'm very curious what the person who recommended this had in mind. I don't have their name right off the bat. If you're listening to this, you know who you are. The That person provided a, a, quite a large list for us here, and many of their cards were worthy of discussion, but not all of them are. Okay. Next up is a slightly more interesting one, Necromancer's Stockpile. Now, this is a funny card. For one and black, it's an enchantment. If you pay one and black and discard a creature card, it says draw a card. If the discarded card was a zombie card, put a 2-2 black zombie creature token onto the battlefield tapped. So this enchantment lets you cycle cards because you discard and draw right away. And if you're cycling a zombie, you get zombies out of the deal. What zombies are playable in Vintage that aren't generated by Bridge from Below? Uh, I think that Grave Crawler is possibly possibly oh, okay. an example of that so great you could have a grave crawler draw engine with this. that's right you'd actually get a fair amount of cards with that trick we reviewed blood scrivener and, w- and determined that it was not really viable and it wouldn't it'd be like it'd be like squee in survival right yeah kind of well not reusable though you just put the the, oh. the grave crawler into play and then the engine would end unless you had some way to get it back into your hand yeah i don't see this being playable whatsoever no the simple truth is is that we don't cast zombies in vintage um I'm racking my brain to think of a, a counterexample to that, but there's just no zombie that we put onto the stack in Vintage. Tide Hollow Sculler has seen Fringe play, but you'd rather cast it than discard it to this. Oh, Yixla Jailer. I mean, there's a zombie that we cast, but you would, there's no way in a million years that you would discard a Yixla Jailer for the extra bonus of getting another 2-2 black zombie. Right. I mean, it c- kind of goes back to the example of Chief Engineer. The creatures we play in Vintage... We play them because we want them in play, doing their primary function. Uh, there's really no time to spend time and mana. This costs two mana per activation, not to mention casting it and spending a card on it just to get a, a tiny a tiny draw engine. So nothing for Necromancer's stockpile. <laughs> this next card is, is pretty unique. Aggressive Mining. Three in red for an enchantment. You can't <laughs> play lands. Sacrifice a land, colon... Draw two cards, activate this ability only once each turn. Ooh. So we've got a red draw engine of sorts based off of sacrificing your lands. That means you can't play any more lands, but it's limited to how often you can use it. So at four mana, now let's talk about the mana cost. Three and a red is pretty unprecedented for vintage these days. I can't think of anything that we play in the last two to four years that costs this mana cost. You'll see anger in certain decks, survival decks, especially many years ago, but that's obviously not put into play in any kind of mana cost way. And the closest thing is two in a red, which we've discussed in several cards before, like Mages of the Moon, etc. So the mana cost is, I would 
I would categorize it as workable, but not advisable. Ostensibly, you're going to play this with a couple lands in play and probably some accelerants, so you can immediately use it to draw two cards. Four mana to draw two cards in Vintage is also not an acceptable transaction. Although, realistically, on your opponent's turn, you could sack another land to draw another card, so it's kind of a slow pay four mana, draw six cards kind of spell. In doing yeah. so, however, you're obviously hampering yourself and your mana production because you can't play any more lands. So even if yeah. you accelerated this out on turn two and sacked your two lands to draw two, you can't get a third land in play without another effect to draw your sixth card. Yeah, I, I think, that, so the way that we typically think of draw engines is that there's something that you're building toward, that they become the scaffolding towards your strategic endpoint. Whereas this actually is more, more like possible to build towards, and then it wins the game. The problem is this, this final sentence, activate this ability only once each turn. You take that off, you have something closer to viable. It's still a bit of a stretch, but it's much closer. So because, for example, you could you could try and force this into play like on turn five or six, sack all your lands, draw, you know, I don't know, four, 10 cards. Four to 10 cards, sure. Yeah, then you have something interesting to talk about. In this case, you know, this is the, the dream Turbo Land finisher, if, if that were the case. <laughs> but but that, 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 that final clause, I think, stamps this with unplayability. I think the, com- the combination of the first and last clause, too. Because even if you could only activate it once per turn, if you could play it early and use it as a value engine throughout the game with something like yeah. Crucible, it would also yeah. be more interesting. So, so if you took off the first sentence and the last sentence, <laughs> you would potentially have a playable. Yeah. But with, yeah. with both of them, I think the last is worse than the first. I agree. It's worse. Yeah. Yeah. Without the last one, you're right. This could be Yogmoth's bargain of a sort. Yeah. In an interesting way. A later a late game limited Yogmoth's bargain. Yeah. I think legitimately without the first ability, you could be looking at more of a landstill type card. Sure, it'd be a control drawing. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, with the combination of effects, it's just it's just unplayable in vintage. Although interesting design. I, I legitimately yep. think that this this is the gateway to some more playable vintage card. Next is one Hushwing Griff. Two white creature Hippogriff, which is just fun to say. Does that look like a Hippogriff to you? Uh, I No comment. There's nothing Hippo-ish about it. <laughs> this creature has flash, flying, and creatures entering the battlefield don't <laughs> cause abilities to trigger, and it's 2-1. Now, obviously... The, the thing you pay for here is that third sentence, creatures entering the battlefield don't cause abilities to trigger. And that has appeared on one other card, which is Torpor Orb, at, at just two mana artifact. So the effect, while it is it is rare, is not unique. And Torpor Orb is a two mana artifact that just says creatures entering the battlefield don't cause abilities to trigger? That's right. And Torpor Orb has made one uh, top eight appearance in Vintage back in 2013. <laughs> I like how the phrasing of that, it doesn't say that creatures entering the battlefield abilities don't trigger. It says that creatures entering the battlefield don't cause abilities to trigger, Yeah. which which means that things that trigger when creatures come into play don't trigger, like, I don't know. Um, Soul Warden. <laughs> yeah, Soul Warden is the classic example. <laughs> so you're right. It, it turns off abilities on those creatures and on any other card that would be looking at those creatures. That's right. It's very inclusive in its disabling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, we should point out up the front that for three mana, a 2-1 flash flying creature is very playable in Vintage. Even Mind Center yep. has seen play for quite a while and still does. Yep. So everything about this body... Heck, you can get a, a Restoration Angel. <laughs> well, that's true. Is, 
Yeah, yeah. So nine nine tenths of the text of this card is already played in vintage. Yeah. But there's a big difference between turning off creatures entering the battlefield abilities and turning off players searching libraries from a vintage yeah. standpoint. Unfortunately, unfortunately, most of the most important abilities in the format right now are not enter the battlefield creature abilities. So. And ironically, the deck that would play this creature is the deck that has all of those abilities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're talking about Blue Angels. Blue Angels is the deck that currently plays Avon Mind Center mostly. Trinket Mage. Yeah. yeah. Restoration yeah. Angel. and. I mean, it should just be mentioned that you can, you know, there are definitely creatures that have like horrendous drawback enter the battlefield abilities like Phyrexian Dreadnought that can be played with this. Yeah. Um, and that whole class of cards. But yeah. Well, so you make a good point. So let's talk about the, the two halves of the way you would use this. One is disabling your opponent's beneficial abilities. So playing this in response to a Snapcaster Mage, or a Trinket Mage, or yeah. a Restoration Angel. <laughs> so using it in the same manner that you use Avon Mind Sensor to gain incremental card advantage. Those effects are so rare, and this effect, this creature costs more than many of them. Like, this costs more than Snapcaster. So it's not very good at disabling them. And also, those effects are pretty uncommon, except for one or two decks in Vintage you're not going to get much value out of this ability, especially not for three mana. But if you look at the other side of it, as you just brought up, Steve, you could use the this ability to turn off negative side effects, and the classic example is Phyrexian Dreadnought. That interaction has already existed, and much more efficiently via Torpor Orb for years. Or Stifle. Or Stifle, sure, or, or, or other things. And the classic deck that featured that interaction was Illusionary Mask, uh, back before Illusionary Mask was butchered for the third or fourth time in a row. <laughs> the So the simple truth is is that a, that interaction has already existed for a much more reasonable casting cost, and no one plays it. I think the combination of those two things says that even though you could build a deck that had Hushwing Griff and Torpor Orb and Dreadnought and a couple other things and be minorly disruptive to certain vintage opponents, the simple truth is, is that it's not good enough to build around. And even Mind Center, while it did see play, and more so a few years ago, it's on the decline now. It's just not a very efficient body. It's just barely good enough to see play, and that's because it disrupts things like fetch lands, which are wanna, ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the most important observation is the one that you made earlier, which is that the one deck that would use something like this <laughs> is the deck that's most harmed by it. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to completely restructure whatever deck you're working on. There aren't enough uh, uh, CIP triggers in the format that, that matter right now. All the triggers that matter are not CIP. Yeah, just just disabling someone's Snapcaster Mages is not backbreaking enough. Doesn't deserve a three mana two one creature. All right, I think as fun as this card is, uh, I don't think it's going to see any play in Vintage. I'm pessimistic as well. Mm-hmm. Next up, Return to the Ranks. X White White Sorcery with Convoke. Return X target creature cards with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. So you are already a creature heavy deck. You are white X, possibly X aggro. You have mid game, a couple of creatures have died, and you pay white white 
and then tap two other creatures you have in play and return those previous two creatures directly to the battlefield. What do you think about that? What was the card that we reviewed not too long ago that like removed, it was like white X, X or something that removes creatures from the game, was it? It was a white creature card that we both thought was interesting, but just we weren't sure would see play. Unexpectedly absent. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, this reminds me of that, but worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the, they're very different cards. I, I know, I know, but they're... <laughs> They're both white. Well, white, <laughs> they, white, white is an issue. And they both have X in the casting cost. Yeah, okay. They, no, no, seriously, I, I just think that, you know... Um, in defense of this card, though, most of the kind of decks that want this effect in Vintage are already white. And this is not a turn one or even a turn two effect. It's a legitimately mid-game effect. So the mana cost, while white, white is problematic... Okay, okay set it up for me. What deck are you playing that's going to have this, and how is it going to be? Let's so Like, you're playing your Hate Bears deck? Yeah. And, like, you play this for, like, four, and you get back, like, your Spirit of the Labyrinth and your Kasali Prime Mage or something? Is that the, is that the gold standard for this? I, I think so. I think this is Yeah, it. that's not playing. <laughs> or, or, okay, let's say... Let's say your Esper artifact-based aggro, and you are playing with Arcbound Ravager. All right. In addition to your Revokers and your other heavily artifact-heavy, like Tide Hollow Stealth. Good luck getting white, white. Well, but it's it's. But even it, with Mox Opal. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, you've got Mox Opals. Maybe you're even playing with um. Maybe you're even playing with. Uh, I was gonna say Springleaf Drum, but that's not the right card. Well, at any rate, Mox Opal's good enough as an example that you're playing Mana Confluence or something. So you you uh, revoke or something early, but they play a better target later. So you Ravager up a couple of artifacts. You sack your Revoker to Ravager. Then you sack your Ravager and move those counters onto a Mistress Factory or something. Then you play this and, and bring back the Revoker and reset it and bring back your Ravager. There. Is that is that it? <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I rest my case. <laughs> All right, fine. I think this effect is really challenging. Let's talk let's let's remove mana cost from the equation, but the simple notion of just returning creatures to the battlefield in vintage needs to be very, very abusable to see any play. The Definitely. the only example of it I can think is Welder. And that's because yeah. Welder has other functions. You can use it aggressively, proactively to remove stuff. You can get bigger things for one. And you can get non-creatures also. Welder's flexibility and power is what makes it, and, and the mana cost, all rolled into one. This card is not nearly as effective as Welder. The use cases are pretty narrow, and the mana cost is way too high. Even at just white-white, if it returned all your two mana creatures at white-white, uh, I think it would still be arguably bad. Yep. All right, moving on. This is a cute one. Quickling. For one blue creature, fairy rogue, flash flying. When Quickling enters the battlefield, sacrifice it unless you return another creature you control to its owner's hand. And it's 2-2. Two, two. So we've got an aggressively costed body that... Flash and flying for two mana, two, two. I mean, without that last sentence, this is a pretty aggressive creature. But it has everything to do with that last sentence. So what do you do? You play it, you block, and then you return it? Uh, oh, you have to sacrifice. No, yeah. if you don't bounce another creature, you sacrifice this right away. Oh, another creature, yeah. Now, this card is almost identical to a previous card, which is White Mane Lion. White Mane Lion is the white version of this. One white, two, two, flash when it enters the battlefield return a creature you control to its owner's hand. It's actually more forgiving because it can return itself. 
and it, but it doesn't have flying. So this is just a, a blue version of white main line that's slightly more restrictive in that it can't bounce itself. The only application for this card, so far as I can see, is in some clever interaction a la Restoration Angel. I mean, this is legitimately a smaller Restoration Angel when it comes to interacting with other things. But Restoration Angel just blinks, thereby saving you a bunch of mana. This returns said creature to your hand. <clears throat> so you can use it for protection from removal like you can with Resto. You can use it to reset something like you can with Resto, but you're going to recast that creature. You can use it to repeat the comes into play effect of something like a Vanillion Click, for example, but you're going to recast that card instead of just blink it. So I don't think the savings you get over Resto makes up for the fact that you have to recast and expose said creature to counter magic as well as costing a bunch more mana. The two mana you save on the front end with Quickling compared to Restoration Angel is lost on paying two or more mana to replay the beneficial creature you, you picked up. So... The fact that this is a fairy rogue, I don't think plays much into it. There is something to be said for the fairy creature type in Vintage. Occasionally a fairy-themed tribal deck has been a thing, but I don't think the body here, the efficiency of this body, makes up for the fact that it's a bouncing a creature is a huge drawback. You could reset a Spell Stutter Sprite, for example. That's a favorable interaction, getting a second use for possibly more mana out of a Spell Stutter Sprite, but yeah. otherwise... There are very few one-mana creatures in Vintage that you want to pick back up and replay, uh, like uh, the, the Wizard, the Sage, that makes you look at the top four cards. I forgot the name of it. That's a pretty minor effect. You could reset a Phyrexian Revoker, like I said, relative to Return to the Ranks. That's also pretty darn minor. And again, this is all in light of the fact that Restoration Angel does this resetting business far more efficiently already. Right, I agree with that. The fact that this is blue is always relevant with regard to pitching to Force of Will, but is also rarely the deal breaker when it comes to playability. So I don't think this quite makes the cut. you have any other thoughts on that one or different thoughts? No, I think that's right. Let's move on to one that I think will be a little closer to your heart, Steve. Void Snare. Blue Sorcery. Return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand. Simple, effective, sorcery speed, possible burning wish target. I don't think this is the card you can afford to main deck in Vintage, just primarily because of the sorcery aspect of it. But I think a lot of people looked at this card and immediately thought it would be a one-of in Burning Wish sideboards. It's I completely agree. Efficiency and flexibility. Yeah, it, it definitely is. It, my last version of Burning Tendrils at the Vintage Championship had... Uh, one, a two chain of vapor and a one nature's claim, or two nature's claim and one chain of vapor. Mm -hmm. The chain would definitely be void snare. It also, again, is that remember that situation where I burning wish for a blue spell? Yep. Just to pitch to, to force or misdirection. Mm -hmm. So I would definitely, yeah, I would definitely uh, play uh, that in burning tendrils. It's definitely going to be played in my deck. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that basically at this point it's going to be almost a given. I think that most Burning Wish based decks are going to start with one of these in the sideboard. I think this will be on a very short list of almost unan unanimous choices in the long run. Yep. Do you think I don't think any non-Burning Wish decks are going to run this. Nope. I think this is the only application. I mean, it's a reasonably efficient card and it it bounces it bounces Blightsteel and Jace and Tarmogoyf and Lodestone Goal. I mean, it bounces everything. But bounce in and of itself is not main deckable in Vintage unless it's something like Hercules Recall or Steel Sabotage, which is far, which are far more flexible. Given that, then it seems the only question is what's the 
amount of play that this card will see, which I guess will correlate on a one-for-one basis to appearances of Burning Wish. And Burning Wish has been heavily played lately. It's it's on on paper, I think it's underrepresented in top eights. People play like the worst versions of the Burning Wish deck. <laughs> so it's only made what five top eights in since our last set review, basically, which is not very many. And I don't see anything that's pushing Burning Wish up or down in terms of playability in the vintage metagame at the moment. Yeah, I I I'm gonna say I'm gonna say uh, three. I'm. I'll say four. No, I'll say three. Three. I think you're right on, right at the cusp. I would say I'm going to take the over on three and say four. Yeah. I think that I think, pe- I think people will see this card and be somewhat energized by it. Yeah. Which is the only reason I'm taking the over. I think that's smart. We'll see though. Next is a really punishing card. Obnixilis Unshackled for four black black legendary creature demon flying trample. Whenever an opponent searches his or her library, that player sacrifices a creature and loses 10 life. When other, another creature dies, put a plus one, plus one counter on Obnixilis Unshackled, and it is 4-4. Four, four. <laughs> this thing really doesn't want you searching your library. <laughs> I, uh, but I can think of a lot of hilarious anecdotes to compare this to. But yeah, the short answer is your opponents get one more library search. <laughs> yeah, I'm a demonic tutor for Voltaic Key. How's that? Yeah, and that I think we've both just kind of humorously highlighted the real problem with this which is yeah okay sacrifice a creature and lose 10 life you're not going to do that very much but unfortunately in vintage it might only take that one time yeah (laughs) so if i'm at 12 and you've got obnixilis and i've got time vault in play yeah i guess i'm going to demotic for key and be it too or god will yeah exactly and uh, or i'm going to demonic for jace and just bounce your stupid obnixilis and how did you get obnixilis in play in the first place Six mana, like this casting cost is reserved for just Yogmoth's bargain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like in the vintage parking lot, <laughs> there's a sign at this casting cost that says reserved for Yogmoth's bargain. <laughs> exactly. And anyone else who tries to park there gets towed. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think this effect, if it was on a much more reasonably costed card, this effect would be relevant in vintage. And be a, a serious deterrent to many things, but at six mana, you're 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 not very well deterring people's fetch lands or mystical tutors. That's right. And this is not worth putting in an oath deck when you could be oathing up Gristlebrand and winning the game. So it really yeah, I have a hard time. I have a hard time imagining this is much play in vintage. Yeah, yeah. I think we're both on the same page there. But hey, anyone who rituals this guy out in a vintage game and makes top eight with that deck gets a high five from me. Ditto. Another legendary creature. Let's talk about Kirkesh, Onake Ancient. Now, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It looks like it's Japanese. Two red red. Legendary creature, Ogre Spirit. No, love that. Whenever you activate an ability of an artifact, if it isn't a mana ability, you may pay red. If you do, copy that ability. You may choose new targets for the copy, and it is 4-3. So we've got another iteration of the... Rings of Bright Hearth effect for copying abilities. This time it's only artifact abilities that don't produce mana. Now, Rings of Bright Hearth, for those of you who may not recall, is a three mana artifact that says whenever you activate an ability, if it isn't a mana ability, you can pay two colorless and copy it. So, Rings is more comprehensive. The primary interaction with Kirkesh that I think our listener wanted to talk about was with Time Vault. So, with Time Vault and Kirkesh in play, if you tap Time Vault, now ignoring how you got it untapped, but if you tap Time Vault and pay red, 
you get two turns. And you can use the first turn you got to untap Time Vault and then take the second turn. And during that second turn, you can do it all again. So Kirkesh so affects... you've assembled the Time Vault combo. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the point, is that Kirkesh ostensibly takes the place of Voltaic Key or Tezzeret with Time yeah. Vault. But, yeah. but the simple fact is, is that you need to untap Time Vault once in order for Kirkesh to start being profitable. And a four mana double red four three creature is not a good replacement for either Voltaic Key or Tezzeret. Are there any other activated abilities of artifacts that we could use with this? Yes. The short answer is yes. You could be copying. You could be copying. Let's say. Not Staff of Nin. Something. <laughs> you could be copying Forge Master. Okay. So getting two artifacts out of your Forge Master. You could be copying somewhat innocuous things such as Sensei's Divining Top to get glasses of Urza. To get extra, <laughs> no, you get extra draws out of Divining Top with this, just like you would with Key. Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, there are relevant effects like that you can be copying. This, this casting class is super prohibitive. Yeah. Red Red Two? No. This is even worse than aggressive mining, which we discussed earlier. Red Red Two is a pretty bad casting cost yeah. for Vintage. And, and this is an ogre spirit. I suppose you could put Cavern of Souls on spirits. That's how you're going to cast this thing. Otherwise, this thing is completely unplayable. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So, Such a deck would almost... And, and it's multiple. It's killed by bolt. At least the saving grace is it is not removed by abrupt decay, but it's still plowed and bolted. Yeah. Yeah, so there's very it's very hard to make a case for playing this because, yes, you could get a little bit of upside, but let's also not forget that Rings of Bright Hearth already exists, and it triggers... I think that. And, and it costs three mana... And it triggers with colorless mana instead of red. So if a workshop deck today wanted to be getting a lot of extra value out of its various activated abilities, mind you, Rings also allows you to duplicate lands and creatures abilities. And Rings of Bright Hearth, well, it has seen play in Vintage, but it's many years since it has seen play in Vintage. So no, I don't think Kirkesh opens up any doors that aren't already open more efficiently for us. Let's look at Perilous Vault. Four mana artifact, five colorless and tap, exile perilous vault, colon, exile all non-land permanents. So what we've got here is a potentially faster Nev's disc that exiles instead of destroying, which is a relevant difference in vintage given things like Dredge and Goblin Welder and so How is this faster? Because you can metal metalworker it or something? Well, because you can pay nine mana and have it happen right now. <laughs> Now, faster okay. should be it's should be read in quotes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the fact is, the turn you draw this, you could activate it. That's what I mean. The odds of that happening are pretty slim in, in reality. <clears throat> this does give our, uh, workshop decks some some comprehensive removal. And let's say you're in a workshop mirror, you could use this advantage to your or this uh, this mass removal to your advantage. The simple truth is that this effect exists in a number of ways already. Nev's Disc is already a good example of that. And Nev's Disc sees no play in Vintage, at least hasn't for a while. And what it did, it was in Landstill, I think, most recently. The ability to exile all non-land permanents is highly relevant. If it costs oh, yeah. zero mana, if this costs the highly. same as Tormod's Crypt to activate, it would be very playable in Vintage. As it stands, four mana relegates it to s certain mana drain decks <laughs> and workshop decks. But the fact that it activates for five means those same mana drain decks can't use it the way they use Nev's Disc. So that interaction's basically out. So we're looking at primarily a workshop card and an inefficient one at that. I think there is an outside chance that some, I would say possibly paranoid workshop players, would put one copy of this in their deck 
to Forge Master out as an emergency reset switch. That's the only use case I can think of, and it's not a very efficient one. Well, Steve, your your impression of this Perilous Vault's playability, I think, is is clear to me. But are you down for zero? Uh, yeah, I'm down for zero. I think I am as well. There is a chance, but I think it's unlikely. <laughs> this next card is hilarious, I think, when you compare it to Alpha. Profane Memento for one colorless artifact. Whenever a creature card is put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere, you gain one life. And obviously this is just the upgraded version, the super upgraded version of Soulnet, <laughs> which was originally printed in Alpha that says... Whenever a creature dies, you may pay one life. If you do, you gain one life. So it doesn't trigger off your creatures, but it does trigger off of any creature going to the graveyard. So discarding them uh, triggers it, and also you don't have to pay the mana. So I guess it's not upgraded in every sense. You can't trigger off your own creatures. And I think the, the reason why our listener requested us to talk about this is because of Dredge, basically. So you your opponent goes bizarre go. I'm, I'm pretty sure that there are uh, so I'm pretty sure that there are cards that are do the inverse. Isn't there a card that does something like whatever an opponent creature goes to the opponent's graveyard, they lose one life? You're thinking of things like, say, Blood Artist, which says whenever Blood Artist or another creature dies, target player loses one life and you gain one life. So you drain someone when their creatures die. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. I just remember there being something like this, but then the inverse. Yeah, so that hurting someone for their creatures dying is not a new effect in Vintage by Martin Magic by a long stretch. But from an efficiency standpoint, Profane Memento is, at, for, at one colorless mana, is, is about as efficient as you can get. Imagine your opponent goes Bizarre Go, and you play a Lander Mox and cast Profane Memento. Now they're going to Bizarre in response. So they're going to, on their next upkeep, assuming they don't live in fear of your Profane Memento, they're going to dredge a couple of times, probably putting two to six creatures in their graveyard, maybe, just during their, their upkeep or draw step. Look, most of the creatures that, that Dredge is going to be using are going to be generated out of Bridge from Below. I mean, if you're going to be dedicating six to seven, maybe at most, cards against Dredge, why would you use this instead of something, I, I don't know, wouldn't you just rather have a, um, uh, what's the, the the one black mana, Planar Void? Wouldn't you rather just have like a Planar Void? I, I just don't see this as an effective anti-dredge card whatsoever. There is a chance that you will gain one turn just yeah. by the interaction of how many creatures they yeah. discard and how yeah. much you life would be you better gain. You would be better off with Tormod's Crypt, Nihil, Spellbomb, or anything like that. Yeah. Yep, you're completely right. Plus, this doesn't slow down their, their actual plan. So you could gain 10 life and they swing at you for 25 and so you buy that extra turn that you wouldn't have had anyway, but then they're still just executing their whole engine. You haven't affected their board. You haven't actually slowed them. I mean, you've slowed them, but you haven't stopped them or anything, and you have to find another answer anyway. And yeah. if your goal is to so, slow a dredge player, there are plenty of zero mana answers that do that much more effectively. Yeah, let's not waste any more time on this card. Next up this is... This card is absolute crap. <laughs> Next up is Soul of New Phyrexia. Love the title. Let's see if it's vintage playable. Six mana, artifact creature avatar, trample, five colon, permanence you control, gain indestructible and end of turn, until end of turn, five, exile soul of new Phyrexia from your graveyard, permanence you control, gain indestructible until end wow. of turn, and it's six, six. So this the second ability, does that have to be in your, can, can you activate that from your graveyard? Only from your graveyard can you activate it. So, so it's, just wanted to clarify, so you're, 
it's not another soul of nephrexia you're removing from your graveyard. It's, it's this, this one. one. Yeah. yeah, Steve, this is part of a cycle, and we're only talking about this one. But there's one for each color, and then a colorless one that has the same ability while it's in play as it does while it's in your graveyard. Well, I like the fact that it has trample. That's an advantage over worm coil engine. Mm-hmm. The permanent indestructibility thing is actually non-trivial. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that it definitely matters when you're combating things like Trigon Predator or Ancient Grudge, etc. Or simply creature combat against another workshop deck. Sure. Um, the five mana is not easy, but it's not impossible either. I see this as something that you could definitely achieve. I mean, and you could do it under multiple spheres. So two ancient ancient tombs and a mox, you know, or an ancient tomb, two moxes in a factory, certainly a metal worker. Um, and, and the ability to do it from your graveyard as well, that's pretty annoying. <laughs> so you could really, pres- you know, you could hide it in your graveyard and, and get a one good sort of use protection against ancient grudge or something. It really does make Kirkle's recall a lot more important and better. Um, yeah, I, I like this. Now, a lot. Steve, I must point out that when we were talking about Perilous Vault, a card that costs four and has an activation of five, you didn't even consider it. Because of what? Because here's the thing. So I, I should have said that there. Nev's Disc is terrible in Workshop decks. Workshop decks are permanent-based art strategies. They're designed to create board advantage. Okay. This is something that it that is synergistic with that because it protects and preserves your board advantage with the card in play rather than having to have something in fact or in your graveyard. Mm-hmm. So that this is entirely consistent with that. I don't think any one either one of these abilities is fantastic, but they definitely have value. Um so, you know, it's a 6-6 six, six trampler. It's in the same slot as Worm Coil Engine. It's in the same slot as uh um you know, Steel Hulk Kite, I could definitely see it being a one-of in that deck and then getting value from its ability. And similar to Worm Coil Engine, it provides virtual card advantage in a different way, but right. toward the same end. Right. It's keeping you with threats on the board despite your opponents having either creatures or removal. And even if it's destroyed, you can still get a benefit out of it. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty good. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that even Indestructible is not a is not a cure-all for removal and vintage. This doesn't help sure. you against Swords to Plowshares. No. It doesn't help you against Hercules Recall, and it doesn't help you against Jace's Unsummon ability. So we are right. talking about... And that's those three things right there are a big swath of what workshops have to contend with. But it is a pretty good answer to Ancient Grudge, removing the card advantage of the, the duplicative Shatter effect. And as I said earlier, it's pretty darn good in creature combat. Now, a 6-6 doesn't have much much competition in Vintage, but you have to imagine that this creature would be side-by-side with a Lodestone Golem and maybe a Revoker or a couple of other smaller things, such that you're eliminating your opponent's ability to get value even out of ostensible trades in combat. Helps you against Tarmogoyf decks, helps you against Delvers, and Steve, you already mentioned Trigon, of course. It kind of nullifies Trigon. You know, Trigon alone might be a reason what that makes this card playable. I agree. I agree. Workshop decks are just struggling game after game to solve their opponent's Trigon Predator. Now, there are solutions in play. I mean, workshops are still viable, but this is just one more arrow in that quiver of answers to Trigon. Yeah, yeah, this seems playable to me. And this is also ostensibly an instant when it comes to Forge Master. Yeah, I no, could see sure. getting. That's why I said I think it's a one of. Yeah, but I could see that players Trigon and Ancient Grudge players on the stack will have to respect this card. Yeah, and it's possible surprise value in the future because when you're banking on getting rid of that other key workshop permanent, the fact that this can come out of their deck with a Forge Master 
and stop you even for a turn could be the difference between winning and losing. All right. Well, yeah, the, act- the activation is not high value, but it's value. Yeah, that's what yeah. I. That's my view. Oh, and also, oh. if you even if you never get to five non-workshop mana, a six ma- six mana six six trampler is never going to be a dead card in a workshop deck. Yeah. realistically. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, again, Worm Coil Engine sort of has a quote indestructibility built in, <laughs> but. <laughs> Well, Worm yeah, Coil know, Engine gets its value but, without any additional mana input. Yeah, without any additional mana. But the fact that this thing can be destroyed, and then you can even you can even sacrifice it to a Forge Master and still get that use out of it at least once. Ooh, that's a good point. That's a very good point, Steve. So this plays doubly well with Forge Master. Well, it's in your library. It has surprise value. You have it on ready access of sorts. And once you've got it into play, it plays well with the second activation of Forge Master. Yeah. The simple fact that it has that much value with Forge Master might immediately put it into playability alone. Yeah. Okay, so then appearances. So Forge Master decks are obviously somewhat ubiquitous to the format. Yep. And looking at just the last few months, Forge Master has put up... Well, since our last set review, since April, Forge Master's only put up, looks like, 8 to 10 appearances. But it's a consistent performer. During the first quarter of the year, it was a little more popular. Looks like 20 to 25 appearances in the first quarter. So we're looking at a consistent 20-ish, 10 to 20-ish appearances from Forge Master. And the deck continues to do well. I mean, Workshops won the NYSE Open, so they're obviously still well-placed. I think... Not every Forge Master player will adopt this, of course. So I think this is a this is probably a two in my book. You want um, you want to take the I'm over gonna, on two? I want to take the over. I'll go three. Okay. I think I think several players will look at this seriously and make space for it. We'll see. It also plays well as a sideboard card. You probably bring it in in other workshop matchups because I have to believe that in many board states in the workshop mirror, this card would just own the board. Yep. Because you can't even answer it with Dismember. Worm Coil Engine, you can answer with Dismember in the workshop mirror because you can shrink it and block it or whatever. And then the three threes are much more manageable. But this card, once you activate the indestructibility, even Dismember doesn't help. Even the one one yep. survives all combat. Yeah. I, I might be underestimating it. We'll see. Next up is a card that we have already technically talked about because it was the You Make the Card winner, Waste Not, for one in black enchantment. Whenever an opponent discards a creature card, put a 2-2 black zombie creature token onto the battlefield. Whenever an opponent discards a land card, add black black to your mana pool. Whenever an opponent discards a non-creature, non-land card, draw a card. It's been a while since we discussed this card, Steve, and we talked about it at length, and we were both, I think, a little disappointed that other cards didn't win You Make the Card, but that's all in the past now. Waste Not, I think its primary application and the primary avenue for discussion is against Dredge in Vintage, where, assuming you get this online early enough, your opponent will gladly, I think, trigger this card a number of ways and times for you. So the question is, is that good enough? Let's take the tried and true scenario of they go bizarre go, and you go landmarks waste not they bizarre in response they're you know not going to give you value up front, but then in our next upkeep they tap bizarre Baghdad and dredge twice, and let's say they dredge a Gogargi grave troll and a stinkweed imp for eleven cards. None of those dredge triggers trigger waste not, so you only get triggers on the three cards they discard, which is almost certainly going to be two creatures and then one other thing. Possibly another creature, possibly a cobble therapy, possibly a land. We'll see. Those two creatures are going to get you two, two, two black zombies. 
and the other card is going to get you either a zombie, some mana, or a draw, depending. I don't think, just as we discussed <laughs> cycling zombies with Necromancer's stockpile, and as we discussed gaining life via Profane Memento, I don't think that even if you got three 2-2 zombies or two 2-2 zombies and drawing a card, no part of that actually helps you win that game against Dredge. Yes, you could get a couple of blockers. Yes, over the course of two turns, you might get four to six blockers. None of that actually stops them from furthering their game plan. And in many cases, it simply won't even be a speed bump for them if they make a dozen zombies into three threes and kill you. Drawing a card, if you're lucky and you draw one card, all that did was replace the waste knot you cast. (laughs) I mean, you'd have to draw three cards off of this, I think, for it to even become close to any value. And against Dredge, you're dead by that point. The only other application I can think of for this card is if you're actually legitimately making a discard engine of some sort. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's... Like disrupting Scepter. (laughs) (laughs) Chains of Mephistopheles, a personal favorite of mine. If you cast this on turn one and then thought sees your opponent on turn two, yeah, if you chose a non-creature, not well, you can't choose a land. So if you chose a non-creature, if you thought sees their force of will on turn two, you get to draw a card to replace your thought sees. That is not enough value. Yes, occasional Grixis players will will help you out and cast Thirst for Knowledge when this is in play right. and discard two artifacts, and there you draw two cards. That's kind of neat. You're only plus one card in that, that narrow scenario, though. There just aren't enough draw-discard type effects that are commonly played in Vintage for this to be reliable value. There aren't enough mass discard it's effects not- for you to proactively trigger this to get enough value. There aren't enough thought seizes, and him to Turok is basically unplayable. So there's just no way to manufacture enough value, even in the best circumstances in Vintage, from this card. There's a chance, if you had an engine of sorts, like a Chains of Mephistopheles-style engine, that this could be a finisher. But even if you string together a Wheel of Fortune with chains, you're still only going to draw... I mean, you're still only possibly going to get a couple of zombies or some mana out of the deal, because chains prevents you from drawing. So that's not even very helpful. Yep, it's just not reliably producing enough output for it to justify including a whole bunch of other weak effects or gambling on what your opponent's going to play. And that's why we were disappointed somewhat in this card when it was originally in the competition. Because <laughs> it's not quite vintage playable. In EDH... Go nuts. Yeah. Next up, Meteorite, which is a hilarious card art if you get to look at it. Some serious Wicked Witch of the West action going on here. Five colorless artifact. When Meteorite enters the battlefield, it deals two damage to target creature or player. Tap, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. We've talked a lot about role players and workshop decks today and in other recent set reviews. Steve, where does two mana that then becomes a mana rock and I don't think that irony, that pun was lost on R&D. How much do you, value do you place on getting two damage out of a five-mana spell for workshops and then fixing your mana a little bit? Well, Unfortunately, two damage is not three damage. And yeah. three damage would have been huge because it gets rid of Trigon and possibly Jace. Yeah, yeah. I, there is one upside to this, and that's that it can be fetched out with the Forge Master. Certainly. Dude, yeah, but Tri- Triskelion just does that so much better. I was going to say, if you're, if you're doing that, then you've already got Trike on tap. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of what other cards sort of do this kind of thing. There's uh, um, Aleopile. That's exactly what I was trying to think of was Aleopile. Yeah. And Aleopile um, costs two and activates for one in a tap. 
So right. ostensibly, uh, any land, any reasonable land on a workshop deck plus a mox would have the same effect for Aliopile as opposed to this five mana. So clearly, if a workshop deck wanted this effect, they're either playing Trike, which they certainly do, they'd play Aliopile, which they don't, or they're the sort of workshop deck that wants this effect and or can make use of the colored mana. So a workshop deck with colored spells in it, aka a five color stacks or a red-based welder-style, moonman-style workshop aggro deck. Moonman-style, yeah. Yeah. And that's a reasonable strategy. That strategy definitely exists, and it has done well. I don't think that strategy is really clamoring for two damage. A workshop deck featuring welders already has, almost certainly has Trike in it, probably Forge Master in this day and age, and that deck already has much better utility in the form of creature removal and or damage, and they'd want to be playing Trike anyway because it's recursive with Welder. So the only place I can see this is in uh, a non-red, I guess, a non-Welder but still colored mana needing workshop deck and such a thing simply doesn't exist that's right i don't see it i mean if you had a a base black workshop deck that was using some other crazy interaction i don't know braids or something you might want this and those decks have been tested in the past they never really panned out well i don't think we need to belabor the point on meteorite i'm predicting none yeah i'm with you as usual for a set review our question of the week for this episode is what new M15 card will see the most play in Vintage. And I say new because we had some humorous interactions on Twitter with regard to basic islands. Thank you for listening to episode 37 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Not safe protective game! <laughs> <laughs>